This is DM Vincent from the Roll for Initiative podcast, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast because I'm too busy keeping it original and keeping it old school, playing D&D First Edition. Greetings. This is Jedi Master Tranen Katar from the Heroes of the Old Republic campaign. Trust your feelings. Never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Say, kids, what would you like to do tonight? Listen to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast! Huh? Every week, these two really smart and funny guys give a synopsis of a Lovecraft story, then talk about background-critical reviews and what the stories say about the author. How do we get these two boys into our home? HPPodcast.com! The internet? I don't know. It's wholesome family entertainment! We should listen to you on and then we can impress our school friends with all our arcane knowledge. Say, you know what I like to do on a night like this? With the dark woods out back silhouetted by the ghostly full moon, the branches shadows making all sorts of crazy angled patterns in the yard. You two aren't going to do that again, are you? Why don't you two go out back and play with the shadows? Take the baby with you. Hey, there's already somebody out there. What? I think they're coming to talk to us. They sure listened. Yeah. Hey, we still can. Hp podcast. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Execute order sixty-six. Well, Gamer Nation, welcome back. I forgot to say off the top of the show that this episode of the Order 66 podcast is brought to you in part by our sponsors, GoDaddy.com, and a new sponsor, FunTicket.com. You guys check them out. But in any event, you're back for episode number 97 as we inch closer and closer to the century mark of the Order 66 podcast. My name is GM Dave. I will be one of the gentlemen on this fine show this evening and we've got a humongous packed show for you tonight not only do we have guests gary asselford and jedi grandmaster rodney thompson we also have the infamous back from costa rica you rat bastard (laughs) gm chris (laughs) what is up gamer nation for those of you who may be walking into this uh, room for the very first time, we are sitting down to roll some dice and play some Star Wars Saga Edition. This is the Order 66 podcast, the only podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing. And, uh, yeah, man, Costa Rica was nice. It was real nice, buddy. Good. I'm glad y'all had a good time. It was warm. Went body surfing. Did you? It's easy. My butt's shaped like a boogie board. Well, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I are two people that can actually be measured in displacement. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> very, very interesting. Yes, indeed. That must have been fun. But uh, yeah, the rest of us were just languishing here while you were gone, and you know. Ah, uh, yes. You managed to put out a solo show though, which was uh, 
rare, and I will say it was rather nice. It was fun, kind of. It was a little, <laughs> it was a little stressful juggling all the screens and music and all that solo, but hey. Hey, if anyone can do it, you can. It turned out did. all right, man. It turned, it turned out, out excellent. Good work, yep. by the way. All right, well, let's kick this pig. Accessing. Ah, good. New acquisitions. Greetings, Gamer Nation. My designation is KCK Sim, and this is your Hollow News Net update. All right, so as you heard off the top of the show, our featured podcast this week is H the HP Lovecraft Podcast. Episodes 31 and 32 have hit recently, in which they're talking about rats in the walls. And I do have a little bit of, a little bit of news that they were featured on with Steve Jackson Games website this week. Yes. Good for them. It's a great cast. If you guys haven't heard it, you really should go take a listen to it. Um, even if you only have a cursory knowledge of Lovecraft or you're a seasoned pro, it, it's it's great. I've I've learned the synopsis and gotten the nitty-gritty on so many stories I have yet to read, um, and they do a great job. Yep. Awesome stuff. For the other podcasts, of course, check out d20radio.com slash forum. Everybody's got a sub forum up there for their shows, and they all do a pretty good job of keeping it updated when new episodes come out. I'm currently working on a big giant list of feeds to kind of redo the website, so to speak, so that everybody knows where everything is and all that good stuff. So Dave's giant list of feeds. That's right. So I mentioned last week, and I think the last show, that we needed help in, in getting audio clips and stuff for the 100th episode. I've gotten none, so I'm just going to retract that, and uh, we, will have, we will have no montage. Aw. Maybe Ooh. Gamer Nation will surprise you. No. You know what the problem is? No. Nobody listens to this show. That's probably the problem, actually. You know, that's, that's a very good point. That is a very good point. That, that's, that is a very good point. It's a very good problem. It's a very good point. All so right. there. Well, there. All right. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Juicy bits of web goodness, Gamer Nation. Lo and behold, new saga content is up at the Wizards website. The inestimable Sterling Hershey is at it again with some new Saga Edition stat blocks for some much-needed fringe characters. Ewok Scouts, Sith Apprentices, Whippet Trackers, and more! Complete with the radio announcer voice. Um, each new NPC stat block is also paired with a mini from one of the various Star Wars miniature sets. Thank you, Watsy. Thank you. Um, for the, Find this new fringe stat pack right now at www.wizards.com slash Star Wars. Yes, and hurry now while <laughs> wizards.com slash Star Wars still exists. Oh, <laughs> That's all right. That's so. not fair. Yeah, Rodney, what's up with that? You going you gonna, you hey. gonna to jump in on that and dog him out? No, nah, it's your show. I figure you can <laughs> run a rough shot over your guests if you want to. <laughs> see? Oh, Boom chakalaka. See, that's it. <laughs> Have him on the show just to insult him. Okay, I'm sorry. I retract that last statement. Jury will disregard. Do you know, you've insulted him several times on the show. I'm amazed he comes back. I have? How? I just recall it in the past, if I, if I recall correctly. I Jabs, I don't barbs, ever, I here, do, there. I, I don't think I ever there, insult there. Rodney. No. Never, never would I insult Rodney. Oh. Never. Never. <laughs> I have way too much respect. 
Speaking of, hi, Rodney. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I think we may have another voice on the line. Uh, Gary, are you there with us? Yeah, I'm, I'm here listening, chuckling. <laughs> See, I introduced you guys, and then I didn't even come to you. I'm sorry. See, I'm just a bad host. Yeah, bad host. Oh. Bad host. No cookie. Oh. No ice cream for a bad host. No ice cream, no cookie, no nothing. I'm just going to be banished to my room. Yes, well, where you need to be banished, actually, is to the frozen north. Because uh, for those who are going to be in the frozen north coming up here in the next uh, week or so, uh, March 6th through the 7th, and you're going to be up at Minnesota State University at Moorhead, there's going to be some convention madness going on. Uh, D20 Radio's own Cyril will be throwing down some Saga Edition up there at ScorchCon 2010. And uh, you guys can find out more at www.scorchcon.com. And uh, also, I'm terribly excited about uh, more Convention Madness news. ReaperCon 2010, uh, May 20th through the 23rd in Denton, Texas. Um, the Order 66 podcast crew and the Radio Free Homelet crew will be there. And we will be running uh, Saga Edition and 4E Games galore. So come, come out to Denton, get your paint on, get your game on, get your minis on. And you can find out more at uh, www.reapermini.com. Yeah. Yeah. Can I inject a little uh, convention madness news as well? Oh, please. Emerald City Con. No. Uh, actually, oh. I'm going to miss Emerald City Comic Con this year. Uh, oh. I'll be going out of town for that. But uh, I did just find out la- uh, earlier this week that I'm going to be going to uh, the GameStorm convention in, uh, I think it's actually in Vancouver, Washington, but por- the greater Portland area in uh, in Oregon. Oh. Uh, I'll be going as a representative for D&D uh, in my capacity as D&D developer, but obviously I'll also be happy to talk about Star Wars and stuff while I'm there. So anybody that's in the Portland area or going to the Portland area for GameStorm should definitely look me up. Fiddleback, that's you. It is. Brian's up there. Host of Game On. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. Are you going to be at Gen Con this year, sir? Uh, my plan is to go, whether Wizard sends me or not. Uh, I haven't been in three years, so yeah, I've missed the last two years, and uh, this year's kind of a big year for me because it's A, right when Dark Sun releases, which is pretty much my biggest project ever, and yeah. B, it's also when the D&D Essentials books will probably get a lot of screen time, and I was one of the designers on, on uh, a lot of those books as well, so, so I definitely want to be there for it this you year. You should definitely be there. Absolutely. Yeah. What about you, Gary? Are you going to be at a Gen Con again this year? Uh, remains to be seen. Depends on the schedule. Like uh, some of you might know, I'm still I'm in a new job. They're breaking me in slowly and painfully, and Ooh. we'll see how much time off I have and what the schedule looks like when we get closer. All right. Yeah, yeah. So right there, I need to say, I have a buddy that I met through podcasting, and his name is Kurt. So if you want me to drop him a call and let him all, let him you know let him know that um, that you need the day off, I'll be happy to do that for you. Well, I don't know if I mean I can just go to his office and ask him. I <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, wow! How awesome is that? Awesome I is love that? you, Gary. All I really need to know is what the super secret project Thirty Eight Studios is working on. That's all I really want to know. But hey, maybe he'll break as maybe. NDA and tell us on a maybe he will on a podcast. podcast on an international podcast. How about that? <laughs> no. Oh, damn it, man! Uh, but. For those of you who uh, like our, our good friend Rodney, who is planning on, and our good friend Gary, who will if he can, um, going to be up uh, August 5th through the 8th, Indianapolis, Indiana, Gen Con 2010. Um, badge and room registration is open. Head to www.gencon.com. And remember, this year, the Gygax Memorial Auction. Own a piece of Gygax. 
Yep. Not literally. That's, yeah. M- memorabilia, folks. Memorabilia. Look at that. Sterling Hershey's in the chat room, and Gary Sarley's in the chat room, and hey. all these people are in the chat room that we like, and we know and love, so yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. And I guess our, our last uh, big announcement is, Dave, what? Contest? I, I don't know of any contest. I haven't got any entries, um, and we've got about eight, 17 days 18 days. Uh, well, people have been posting up on the forums rather heavily, days. asking question, question, that question. That is true. That is it's true. It's entirely possible they are still writing. I am very happy to say that we have had some very good, uh, what would you call it, activity on the forum. Extremely Although we haven't good. seen any, uh, we haven't seen any submissions yet. We we are hoping to get a bunch here. Maybe you the, can uh, maybe you can tantalize listeners who may not be familiar with this podcast by talking about uh, the contest itself and uh, what prizes are available to them. All right. Maybe. All right, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm in a somewhat surly mood today. The U.S. lost. Mm-hmm. All right. And I don't know. I don't know. I've had a bad soccer weekend. It's been a terrible soccer weekend. But anyway, that said, I have a great, uh, we have this great prizes that uh, Christopher West sent over from mapsofmastery.com. And uh, um, we have one very big Swamp Caves map and Desert Sanctum map, and this is what the contest actually revolves around. You guys have to head over to mapsofmastery.com and check out the Swamp Cave map and the Desert Sanctum map and engineer a an encounter for those maps. Standard five party, any level, we don't care, and we'll judge it, and the best encounter will win this giant map back in front. Second place... We'll take home an autographed Chris West original print of the Millennium Falcon map. And third place takes home some uh, map tiles. So, I mean, good good prizes. Excellent prizes. Yeah. I'm excited to see what we get. I'm hoping people are just writing their little hearts away. But uh, if you guys want to find out more about the contest, you can head over to www.d20radio.com slash forum. Head to the Order 66 boards, and you'll find a nice little sticky thread for it. Right up there with all the contest details. You can uh, find out the rules and requirements and how to submit. This is where I say, come on, Gamer Nation, don't let me down. That's all. Don't let me down. Because these prizes are awesome. They are. A small part of me hopes that we don't get any submissions just so I can keep them. So we can keep them. Yeah. See? Yes. That's right. I have have a frame picked out for the uh, Millennium Falcon print just in case. All right. See, we we can play rock, paper, scissors to see who gets that one. Um, now, um, speaking of, uh, speaking of, well, no, actually, I don't have Luke Lowbrow this week. I, uh, um, unfortunately, GM Dan, uh, did not check in real life incidences, uh, um, precluded a Luke Lowbrow this, this week. So what we will do is play for your listening pleasure, pleasure, oh my gosh, I can't even talk, <laughs> Alex Van D and Trevor C, and we'll go to Fragments from the Rim. No, right Dave, now. Dave, 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 Dave. Uh, not that I really give a flying crap, but did you get a postcard from that awful traitor? No. I did. Well, he was captured, you know. Oh, see, I don't listen to his crap anymore. He Really, he was finally captured. He was. And I, I mean, I got a real cryptic droid message thing. That I, di- I didn't know what to make of it. You want to you listen to it? See if mm. you can help me make heads or tails of it? Okay. This is Protocol Droid OR-502. Warning, Archangel is down. 
All transmissions are being monitored. The fleet is Alpha Tango with satellite. Vector Charlie is hovering. Transfer protocol is Niner Niner 1 and emergency token Bravo is active. End transmission. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm pretty sure the Rebels wanted us to broadcast it. God. Yeah, I- I'm legally absolved. That's all I care about. <sighs> yeah, well, hopefully... I mean, I've I've had my misgivings with Cody, but uh, with any luck, they're killing him right now. Eh, with 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 any luck, uh, well, one can only hope. Slow and torturous death, Cody. See, from, from... see, TG's the only one that has any vested interest in her um, potential baby daddy. So, mm. where is TG, by the way? Oh, TG's doing prego nap. Ah, oh, prego nap. Prego nap. TG had a very busy day. She had many things to do. Came home and said, "I'm sorry, but I needed to go to sleep." And I said, "Go to sleep." Prego. It's okay. Yes, indeed. You must bake little baby, little little baby GM. She's wor- working hard, man. Growing a human. It's tough. I know. She's she's growing a new GM as we speak. Uh-huh. Yep. And when that little girl comes out, what is going to happen is that she will be a gamer from day one. Yep. She'll come out rolling dice. She might Pretty even much. come out with a D6 like in her hand. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. We'll see. All right, so we'll do Fragments of the Rim uh, for four minutes or so, and then we'll be back right after this. Welcome, Jedi Masters, to Fragments from the Rim. How may we be of service to you today? Hi, this is Alex. And Trevor. This is segment number 43 of Fragments from the Rim. For this segment, I've chosen to talk about the talent Battlefield Remedy, which is in the veteran talent tree on page 21 of Galaxy at War. This is what it says. You have learned a variety of different ways to treat combat injuries in the field. When you succeed on a treat injury check to administer first aid, the tended creature also moves plus one step on the condition track. Quite useful, first of all, to add hit points, but second of all, to move someone up on the condition track. There aren't that many different ways to do it, and this doesn't require any expenditure of force points or anything else like that to do it. Over to you, Trevor. Today, I'm going to talk about a noble talent from the Master of Intrigue talent tree on page 20 of the Galaxy of Intrigue book, and that is the Master Manipulator talent. Now, the really neat part about the Master Manipulator talent is, again, it's one of the talents that gives you one of three options that you can do in any uh, given uh, encounter. And my previous two uh, fragments, get into position and advanced planning are prerequisites for it, hence you know, me following this progression. Essentially, as a master manipulator, you can use each of the following actions once per encounter as a swift action on your turn. Demand recovery. Select one ally within five squares and in your line of sight. That ally moves plus five steps on the condition track and gains a plus two morale bonus to attack rolls and skill checks until the end of your next turn. That's great! Somebody's just basically been taken out because uh, they've been shot by a bounty hunter and he's got all the right tweaks to bring somebody straight down or, or take them down on the second shot uh, and you can just bring them back up again. Uh, that's that's really cool. Um, exceptional control. Roll a d20 
and mark the result. Once before the end of the encounter, as a reaction, you can replace the result of any enemy or ally's roll with the result you rolled for this ability. The enemy or ally must be within your line of sight. So just, just think about that. You roll. The beginning of the encounter, you just roll. And you get, oh, look, you got a 1, potentially an automatic miss. Oh, look, you got a 20, automatic critical, or automatic success. Think of all the things, and, and every number in between, of course, but think about the things that that means that you can affect in the combat. The big bad guy just lays a smackdown on your big guy. No, here's a three that I rolled. Does that hit? No. Well, the guy just missed. <laughs> you know, or your your force user is down to the end of his wire, and you've fortunately rolled a 20 on this roll, and he's he, he's been burned out. He doesn't have anything going on. He uses his last use of force check, and you just go, here, here's a 20. Not only do you now get, you know, a really good success on the roll, but you get all your force powers back. So you, as the noble... That's a huge support concept. You have the ability to greatly impact the flow and the ebb of battle or to change things at a critical juncture. Now, it's only one roll, but depending upon what you roll and how you use it, that's really, really cool. And the third option is word of warning. Select one ally within five squares and in your line of sight. Once before the end of the encounter, as a reaction to that ally having any defense score targeted by a skill check or an attack, you can replace that ally's defense score with your same defense score until the attacker's skill check is resolved. So, basically, uh, some big bad evil guy is using something that affects the will of the of the soldier. And soldiers are, are notoriously known not to have a lot in the way of will, or at least in this case, this guy does, and you've got a great will score for whatever reason. So you, uh, in a reaction to someone targeting that guy's will, you replace his will score with your will score, and lo and behold, again, you've changed the tide of battle. You've had a huge impact from being a support person. You're not doing anything with a weapon. You're not doing anything with with an ability you're just influencing the outcome of the battle because of your ability to manipulate people and things and luck around you and that is really cool anyways if you have any questions or comments please uh, send alex or i an email at order 66 underscore fragments at rogers.com and until next time have fun gaming thank you masters for visiting fragments from the rim as always, thank you, Alex, Trevor. I have to tell a story. I'm sorry. Okay. So, yesterday, I did a set of six soccer games, and the game right, my, my next to last game, this coach is yelling at one of his players, and I, and I realize, man, that really sounds like Alex Van D from Fragments from the Rim. And I don't know why the thought went through my head. I had my back turned. I was looking at the at the play, and it went through my head. My gosh, that guy sounds like Alex. Not two seconds after I did that, that coach started yelling at a kid on the field named Alex. Alex then passed the ball across the field to the, the next object of the coach's rant, and his name was, guess it? Trevor. Trevor. I just thought that was absolutely hilarious. See, the Force, she works in mysterious ways. It does. I mean, you know, the dark side of the Force is out of the office because of the snowstorm, so the light side of the Force takes over. That's it.
Done. Yeah, I really do miss that Luke Lowbrow. It just kind of something something just doesn't flow with the with the show without Luke Lowbrow. <laughs> I miss it too. I know. Do you hear that, Jan? <clears throat> we miss it. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> Lazy ass. <laughs> so hey that meerschaum is looking pretty good already look at that thing yeah i know it's starting to get a nice little brown glow to it i I'm, like it i know i'm amazed all right so uh meat time you know Well, we're going to jump right into the meat of tonight's show and welcome our two special guests for the evening. Uh, again, <laughs> uh, Jedi Grandmaster Rodney Thompson and Jedi Master Gary Asselford. Uh, two voices that I, I'm glad and I'm, I'm sure you are glad to hear. And uh, they are uh, wonderfully joining us tonight to discuss the recently released Galaxy of Intrigue. And we've got a lot to talk about. I can't wait. We're, we're going to have some crunchy questions tonight, as the Gamer Nation had some about this book. But I'm also pleased at, at some of the lighter design questions we got regarding this amazing supplement. And uh, we are poised and salivating to start this discussion and get an inside look at the book. Um, also, just before I forget, big thanks to Cyril and Pukuni um, over on our boards and Watsis for helping compile some questions from all over for tonight. Uh, big thanks, guys. Couldn't have done it without you. Yeah. So, other than that, Gary, Rodney, are you guys ready to, to as they say, rock and roll? Absolutely. Oh. Asilver, are you going to take what Sarley's throwing out in the chat room there? I'll let him. Okay. Let him. It doesn't right. hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to allow it. <laughs> I'm going awesome. to allow this. See, that's why I love having you guys on the show. Oh, Fantastic. Well, all right, let's get this discussion underway. Um, all right. Let's, let's start with some intriguing questions and kind of do an introduction to this book um, by discussing the genesis and the, the ideology behind Galaxy of Intrigue. Um, to, to sum it up, I, I got an email from, from Mike from Springtown, we haven't heard from in a little while, who says, I love this book. I can't wait to use it in my games. But from a design perspective... There seems to be a very thin line between this and scum and villainy. Aside from the whole noble scoundrel distinction, what was the underlying emphasis of this book? And does this relate to the roles you see these two classes playing in the Saga Edition game? Uh, well, to a certain degree, there is a thin line between nobles and, and scoundrels, especially when you talk about you know what they do in secret, right? Uh, I like to think of Galaxy of Intrigue as the big book of secrets. And in fact, at one point, uh, the book's... Uh, outline called for the book to be called Galaxy of Secrets, but uh, we changed it to Galaxy of Intrigue uh, for some reason or another. And <laughs> so, uh, basically, the way I like to look at it is Scum and Villainy is a book about not getting caught, and Galaxy of Intrigue is a book about nobody knowing that you're doing something that they should catch you doing. Right? It's gotcha. it's it's sort of two sides of the same coin in a lot of uh, a lot of ways. But Galaxy of Intrigue is really more about all about secrets and conspiracies and uh, things happening behind the scenes, whereas Scum and Villainy is more getting things done outside of the law. Uh, you know, a, an intrigue-based campaign doesn't necessarily have to include things happening outside the law. There could be perfectly legal intrigue, right? It's just a, it's just a matter of you know what's being done. So. Uh, that's that's the big distinction there. Easy. Well, that's 
sensical. Gary, anything to add? Not really. Uh, Rodney's got more of a, I, 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 he's got a deeper view into where the book came from originally. Um, he brought me in, you know, on the back end. So <laughs> <laughs> he brought me in. I like it. Cool. I think that <clears throat> is a mark. A mark. Oh. Okay, then. I have, no. As in, like, you mark it for later use, you know? Oh, like yes. Like, for a, for a yes. montage, you a know? A montage of funny lines. He brought yeah, me in it, on the back end. Very brought, nice, yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> I like it. Well, very cool. Well, let, let's kind of delve into some of the, the nuts and bolts of the book itself, starting with the, I guess, the species chapter. Um, just well, for speaking for myself, I, for me, this book did not disappoint. Um, several new species, uh, lots of uh, uh, new species write-ups, including full flesh-outs for both the Bith and the Nemoidian, which were previously only you know NPC stat blocks, basically. Um, I know we had a, 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 one of the hosts of City of Doors was actually crying, uh, begging for months for a full Bith write-up. He's a big fan of the Bith. So that's very pleasing. Um, but we, we did have a, a couple questions here. Regarding species, uh, we had one come in from Uron Tef, and I- I'm fairly sure we've answered this before, guys, but I think it's a common question that I think bears revisiting. And uh, Uron Tef asks, he says, does the species quality stealthy that the, the Umbaran species gets on page 19? And I know I know Ewoks have it in the core rule book, among other species. Um, does that species quality stealthy and the improved stealth from Scout, uh, the camouflage talent tree, stack in a way that you can re-roll but keep the better result? Or do those two abilities just combine to basically allow you to roll three times? You can you can re-roll it twice, basically keeping the last re-roll. Yeah, basically that's what happens is you keep the last re-roll. So essentially you roll the check and then you're like, okay, I don't like this result, so I'm gonna use my species ability. And you re-roll it. You're like, I don't like this result either, so I'm gonna use my scout talent to re-roll it again. And then at that point, unless you have something else that allows you to re-roll, you're pretty much stuck with it. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Yep. Well, I guess regarding the species talent, I always ask you guys this. Um, this is for both of you. Um, of all the species that are in the the new book, um, do you guys have a favorite? I'll let uh, let Gary tackle that first. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Um, well, I've, I've always liked Herglix. I think Herglix kick ass. Yes. Uh, despite the fact that they're kind of big and and they don't have much in the way of dexterity, um, I've always loved them since since D6 in the Tapani sector. Uh, outside of the main, you know, outside of that chapter, the species chapter, uh, not to, you know, toot my own horn or anything, but I always liked Palowix, which is one of the reasons I wanted to include them in the, the Nerian write-up. Gotcha. I think Pal- I think Palowix kick ass. I think they're underutilized, and uh, they take a lot of smack. They really do. A lot of smack? No pun intended? Well... <laughs> Who, who wants to be somebody with a big long snout with lips on the end? I mean, <laughs> besides me. <laughs> I'd rather know who doesn't want to play a guy with a big long snout with lips on the end. Yeah, because whoever that guy is, I don't want him at my table. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, for me, I would say actually Herglick is, is probably my favorite of all the ones in the book. Uh, just because basically the same reason, love the Tapani sector. Uh, when D6 was coming out. I also have a, a certain fondness for the, the Godel species. Um, Godels have always been one of those species that, when I first saw A New Hope, and you can see them in the background of the, the Moss Eisley Cantina, I was like, 
what are those things? They look so weird. They've got cones on their heads. And then over time, you know, I just sort of followed them. And uh, yeah, they they also played an integral role in the creation of my favorite organization in the Star Wars universe, the uh, Antarian Rangers. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. Very nice. Any species that uh, sells prosthetic head cones as part of their culture is, um, I think, worth keeping around. Very nice. Well, cool. Um, well, of all the species in here, I mean, just going ahead and looking at it, I, I got to agree with the two of you. Um, I'm just, I was tickled pink to see Hergolix in here. I've had a fondness for them for a very long time. Just whale people. Plus the idea of playing somebody with a blowhole on the top of his head is, you know, interesting. <laughs> well, continuing through the, the Heroes of Intrigue chapter, there, there's quite a bit here. And uh, we saw Galaxy of Intrigue offer just a, a bevy of new talents for for the noble, scoundrel, scout, soldier, um, as well as some new talents for ace pilot, bounty hunter, crime lord, and gunslinger. Um, now, we've had uh, a few specific questions about some of the talents that have been offered up. Um, specifically, we had quite a few come in uh, regarding the done-it-all talent, which is from the noble's new Master of Intrigue talent tree, uh, which is located on page 20 of Galaxy of Intrigue. Um, Cyril, Pacuni, they both uh, sort of compiled several uh, instances of this question, so many people were curious about it. And there's apparently been some heated discussion on the forums, too, over at Watsi and at uh, D20 Radio. And the crux of the question is, so th this talent states that you can, what you do is you, you choose two talents from any non-prestige class that you meet the prerequisites for. And you can use them for a round by spending a force point. The question comes around, does this include talents from base classes that you don't have any levels in? Also, what about force talents? Um, apparently, Watsi customer service answered no to force talents, but the community was really interested to get your take on this. Yeah, and actually, um, the customer service guys actually came down to my desk and asked me about that. Uh, <laughs> this is not meant to. This is not meant to imply to, to force talents. It's just class talents. And yes, it can be from a class that you don't have any levels in, as long as you still meet the prerequisites for the uh, the talents. You'll notice that a lot of talents have prerequisites. Very few of them actually have any kind of class level prerequisites at all in them uh so basically it's a it's a way for you to get some benefit of just a couple of other random talents and yeah it's a pretty good talent but you know by the same token you gotta use a force point every time you want to actually gain the benefit of it uh i don't know i i feel like when we were designing this book we you know had heard a lot of people saying there's a lot of great talents out there that i just can't ever use um, so I wanted to give another way for people to get a few more talents, and if that means they dip a level in Noble for this talent, uh, that, that, that's a fair trade for me. Awesome. I like it. I'm, I, I can't wait to use it, actually. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, moving on, we had a question from uh, Preacher23, who asked about the Assured Skill talent uh, from the Noble's new Superior Skills talent tree on page 21. And they said, I have a question about uh, Assured Skill on page 21. It and the, the talent states, when you select this talent, choose one skill. Whenever you roll a skill check with that skill, you can choose to lose any competence bonus to that skill check and instead roll two dice, keeping either the result. Does this mean that you lose the bonuses granted by either like skill training or skill focus or, or an ability bonus? Or is it all three? Um, and, and if so, why would someone use this talent for something a feat would have a better chance of success through in terms of skill focus? Um, he says he just loves the idea of this talent for a battlefield medic or something of equal caliber, so he was curious to get your response. 
Well, skill focus is the only one of those that actually provides a competence bonus. Yeah. So basically what you do is uh, this is set up so that you take this talent and it's either instead of taking skill focus or uh, you know at the same time as taking skill focus, all that sort of means you're doubling up. Uh, the way it works out mathematically is rolling 2d20 uh, for a single check is the equivalent of about plus 4.5. Uh, so or plus it's it's like it's either plus four point five or plus five one of the two I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, um, so it's about the same uh, percentage chance for success as rolling one d twenty and adding you know your skill focus bonus. But what this does is it gives you a higher chance of rolling a natural twenty, which works really well with the next talent in the tree, critical skill success, which gives you benefits whenever you uh, roll a natural twenty, uh, and also you've got um, skill confidence is another talent from this tree that if you roll a natural 19 or a natural 20, you get uh, a special you know benefit as well. So basically, I wanted to include that as a way to you know get your average result up without necessarily adding to your top end. Uh, I know one of the problems that, that a lot of people have with, with um, uh, skill focus, especially at low levels, is that they can get these really, really high results very, very early on, right? So this says, yeah. well, you're not going to be able to get any higher result than you normally would, but your average is actually going to creep up. Uh, and then, that, like I say, it works well with those other two talents, which uh, depend on your sort of natural role. So it's a it's a substitute for skill focus that works pretty well with some other talents. Cool. Now, the next question we had, um, actually, when we come to the tail end of it, I think, uh, I think both you and Gary can kind of weigh in on this because uh, this is some 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 advice, I guess, from experienced uh, veteran gamers is really what he's asking for. But um, this revolves around the skill challenge talent tree, which is new to nobles. And uh, Darth Bob emailed in a question about this, and he said, I-, "I really like this skill this skill challenge talent tree on page twenty for the noble. I play four E a lot, and I'm a fan of skill challenges." And then he writes, "Also, as an aside, I like to say that the skill challenge chapter in Galaxy of Intrigue is clearer on skill challenge building." More clear than any fourth edition book I've read yet. Go figure. Um, but my question is, my GM is lukewarm on using skill challenges, and I'm worried that if I take one of these talents, they'll be wasted. Do you think that taking one of these talents would encourage my GM to use more skill challenges? Or bottom line, how could I get my GM to use them more at any rate? Thanks, and again, thank you for all the hard work you've done on a great game. Well, you know, in general, I would just say basically talk to your game master and you know say hey you know i'd like to have more skill challenges in here because i want to make it a part of my character that i'm you know that i can take these talents if you're if your game master is not going to use them i mean we we sort of warn you on the sidebar of this book that if your game master is not going to use skill challenges you probably want to give this skill challenge uh you know feats and talents to pass just because you know something that never comes into play is just you know dead weight on your character right. um but you know, if you if you want your your game master to use them, just try and you know encourage him to use them, and maybe even you know, I I don't know, volunteer to run a few games that have a lot of skill challenges in them. Try and show him what the the advantages of the system are. And you know, it may just turn out that he doesn't like the system and doesn't want to use them. That's okay. You just might have to suck it up and say, well, I obviously we're not going to use those in this game, so I obviously can't take these talents. And that's okay. Like I said, we just I just included them in the book so that a game, you know, a very heavy intrigue-based game might use a lot of skill challenges, and it might turn out that those talents are more useful than combat talents because your game, you know, if out of every ten encounters, six of them are skill challenges, well, oh, these yeah. talents suddenly become very, very attractive. 
Oh, yeah. Gary, any advice you can give from your role-playing experience on maybe guiding your GM towards this path or uh, suggestions? Well, given the focus of Galaxy of Intrigue, I think blackmail works. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I like skill challenges, but when it comes down to playing in somebody else's game, it's it's their game. And you kind of have to abide by the decisions that they make if they don't want to complicate. Uh, not that it's complex, but if they don't want to seemingly complicate the, their role as a GM by using skill challenges, there's really not much you can do. You can ask them, you can talk it over with them, but like Rodney said, if they're not going to use skill challenges, that tree is completely useless to you. Um, go ahead, try to run a couple games, introduce skill challenges to them from a player perspective and see how it makes them feel. Uh, maybe they'll change their mind, maybe not. Um, and like I said, if that doesn't work, uh, compromising photos, uh, hostages, things like that might be in order. I find that works well with the GM usually. Yeah, quite often. Oh, there's always there's always, there's always bribes too. Th that's Cookies, also yes. Cake. Pizza. Yeah, pizza. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Well, good question, Darth Bob. Um, the, the last real question we had about the talents in the book uh, came from Paul Klein, uh, who was curious about the pistol duelist talent, uh, page twenty-five uh, for the gunslinger, and he was asking. Um, should the, the talent pistol duelist have any prerequisites? Because it doesn't list any. I mean, if not, wouldn't that make this the only three-tier feat with, with no prerequisites? I mean, three-tier feat, meaning it's got the, the multiple uh, encounter abilities, basically three things you can do per encounter with it. Uh, well, it does have a prerequisite of you know having to be in this uh, prestige class. So <laughs> you know, it's already something that's sort of coming down the line. And I think the trick with this one is to realize that we couldn't really put this at the, th you know, the have it give it two prerequisites because you wouldn't get it until thirteenth uh, level or something like right. that, and it's just that's so long to wait for something like this. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, you know, this is the only one we've done for a, uh, a prestige class. But if we ever do more, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't expect to see prerequisites on them just because you already have to make your way into the class. Well, that, that makes sense, and I mean. It I mean, from a from a mechanical standpoint, what the the other third tier talents? You know, the earliest you can get them is level five. This you have to be at least level eight before you're going to get it, and that's you know, that's a big deal. Well, cool. Um, <clears throat> I guess continuing through the the Heroes of Intrigue chapter, uh, moving into the feats section, there are 26 new feats available in Galaxy of Intrigue. And some of them were just drooling. I know, Dave, uh, for your Wookiee character, uh, Salura, um, th there's this one particular feat that we were just cracking up over. It's almost like it was written with the character in mind. Mitchell. Um, Mitchell. <laughs> which was Channel Rage, which, you know, since he's running this Wookiee Jedi that's overcome his natural rage, it just worked wonderfully well. Ah, yes. Um, but we did have a few questions about some of the feats in the book. Um Paul Klein had another one about the meat shield feat. Uh, great name, by the way. Uh, on page 28. And he said he, he likes the feat a lot, but he's curious. He says, why does the, the meat shield feat have such heavy offensive prerequisites when the benefit is extremely defensive in nature? What was the, the logic behind that? Well, it's sort of you're, you're sort of dodging around and trying to make your shot past this, you know, the soft cover or whatever and still remaining accurate. It just sort of represents your ability to move nimbly and still be effective in combat and then also gain the defensive benefit of it. That makes sense. Yeah, as you gain that combat experience, it translates over. That makes sense. 
Um, now, we had uh, several people, um, both Cyril and Paul Klein, had some questions about hobbling strike on page 28. Um, several things. First of all, they wanted to know, does hobbling strike require sneak attack and a rapid blank feat, um, or is it any one of those three choices? Uh, it's, it is it's it is poorly worded. Uh, it should be... Um, uh, it should be any one of those three. Gotcha. Okay. Um, also, the hobbling strike feat, uh, it states that when you, obviously, when you deal extra damage through rapid strike, rapid shatter, or sneak attack, you, instead of doing the extra damage, reduce the target's speed by one square for the rest of the encounter. And they want to know, can you switch between the extra damage and the reduction of the speed, or does this talent completely replace the extra damage against that character for the rest of the encounter? And also, could you do this multiple times? I mean, eventually, perhaps even reducing a target speed to zero. Uh, you can use it. Um, you can choose to use it. It doesn't automatically replace it. It just means that you have the option to use this if you want to. Um, and... Uh, Yes, basically you can use this multiple times to reduce their speed like further. Fantastic. Very cool. Um, Cyril related uh, a couple other feet questions he had. Um, the first one was regarding the Resolute Stance feat on page 28. And he wanted to know, um, obviously, what, it, what I mean, the feat in a nutshell, when you fight defensively, you get, it says you get a bonus to will defense. Um, he wanted to know, is the bonus to will defense for fighting defensively with this feat in addition to the normal reflex defense bonus, or does it actually change the bonus you get? So in other words, do you get both, or do you get the will instead of a reflex bonus? I'm sorry, which one was this? Uh, Resolute Stance, page 28. Ah, Resolute Stance, right. Um, it is in addition to the normal stuff you get. It is normal reflex defense bonus, and also now this will defense bonus on top of that. Gotcha. Um, the other question he had was regarding the Bone Crusher feat on page 25. And he wanted to know, uh, is it meant to stack with the Rancor Crush feat uh, from the Legacy Era campaign guide? Which, in essence, does the same thing. So could you take both feats and, in essence, move somebody two steps down the condition track? Yes. Wow. Oh, my God. My grappler's going to love it. <laughs> and I guess the, uh, the last question we had regarding the... Um, the Heroes of Intrigue chapter was uh, prestige classes. Um, GM Dan voiced a lot of folks' questions by asking, why were there no new prestige classes in this book? Well, we didn't really feel like there was one that, you know, was necessary. I mean, we've already sort of done, you know, a lot of different prestige classes that covered a lot of different archetypes, and this was one of those cases where nothing really jumped out as, this is the prestige class that we need to put into this book, um, like even if you look back to like Galaxy at War, for example, like the martial artist uh, prestige class is one that was really easy to say, okay, this is the kind of thing we want to put in there, right? Right. Whereas for this case, in this case, I didn't really feel like there was any particular prestige class that that had a really pressing place in the game uh, for this book. I mean, most of the most of the, the, the things that people have suggested for these prestige classes, like Senator or something like that, uh, doesn't really evoke the same kind of feeling uh, to me that things like you know Martial Arts Master do, right? Plus, I kind of feel like a lot of that's already covered by the Base Noble class or uh, like the Corporate Agent from Knights of the Old Republic or something like that. So um, I felt like we could do just as many good things in the core noble class that we could have done for the noble prestige class. 
I think it's worth noting, and I mean, you guys can agree or disagree, you don't have to prestige class. I mean, you, you could argue that you could make as powerful or more powerful of a character in many cases just staying pure class with maybe a level dip here or there. Yeah, maybe. And, and you, you do lose out sometimes on um, some defense bonuses because the prestige classes do include increased yeah. defense bonuses. But I feel like if you're already heading in that direction, you can just as easily use things like the corporate agent to satisfy those needs. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, all right. I'd like to move on to, I guess, what I what personally I've really been waiting to talk to you guys about this book. Um, uh, my favorite chapter, a lot of people's favorite chapter, skill challenges. Uh, chapter 11, page 31. Holy schmoly. Um, we all knew it was coming. You know, you were kind enough last time you were on to, to give us uh, some teasers, basically, and say, oh, yeah, but it's going to be there. It's coming. But I don't, I, I don't think so many of us expected it to be as codified and, and well put together as this. Um, I mean, just personally speaking, of all the new mechanics to enter this game so far, this is hands down my favorite. Ditto. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was it was great. So I, I was hoping to. We had a couple questions, and I was hoping we kind of you could kind of just talk to us about the impetus behind this. And to kick it off with uh, a question, Paul Klein asked more specifically. He said, "You know, I think it'd be cool if we could ask Rodney about the evolution of the skill challenge. Uh, you know, from from D and D four E to Saga, and how they're related together, and and really, you know, how you design this." Sure. Um, well, so the original concept for skill challenges obviously comes from D&D 4th edition and really comes from, I, you know, I may be wrong about this because um, the skill challenge system was being designed about the time I was starting at Wizards of the Coast, but I'm pretty sure it came from Dave Noonan. And uh, basically it was designed to be a system to resolve complex situations that should have the same weight as an encounter, like a combat encounter, but that don't use you know combat as its resolution. And so... Uh, when you sort of break it down, combat in its its basic essence is a lot of checks against target numbers and then progress against some kind of progress meter. Now, that's a very vague and, and you know abstract terms for attacks versus a defense and then damage against hit points, right? And so the the concept behind skill challenges originated with translating that over to skills now obviously we didn't want to do things like skill damage and things like that because at a certain point it becomes too much weight added into the game it would slow the game down even more so it, it was basically a system of successes and failures that was created uh it evolved of course throughout the development of fourth edition and then when the books were finally released you had a system in place that said a lot uh, about non-combat situations um, t with varying degrees of success. Now, when people first picked up the 4th edition books, a lot of them didn't seem to either understand or uh, didn't like the initial presentation of uh, 40 skill challenges. And, I, you know, it's understandable why. It's this whole new sort of high-concept thing. And I think what happened was we, and I, I say we meaning uh, RPG R&D, knew what we wanted skill challenges to do and could sort of instinctively make them do that, but sort of forgot to actually tell people how to do those things, right? I mean, it was it's one of those things where like, okay, here's this resolution mechanic, but, you know, while it's sort of second nature for us when we're designing an adventure, oh, this is how you use skill challenges. For a lot of, of DMs, that wasn't, you know, very readily apparent. So over the course of about, I would say, two years... Uh, from the time that skill challenges first hit the public until I started working on Galaxy of Intrigue, um, 
we we learned a lot. We saw how people were using them, what things were confusing people, um, what they liked, what they didn't like. Uh, the other big uh, sort of evolutionary step that skill challenges took during that time was adventure design. In adventure design, uh, our, our writers, both in-house and freelancers and for other companies and whatever, what have you, were all doing interesting things with skill challenges that weren't explained anywhere in the rules. And I, and I would see it in my own games when I was, I'd was i be designing a skill challenge and be like, oh, this is a skill challenge about putting out a fire. Well, failing to put out a fire, does like every time you fail to do something, doesn't actually make the fire worse. It's just sort of the slow burn thing. So I'll do this mechanic instead of that mechanic and what have you. And after a while, I sort of sat down and looked and I said, boy, skill challenges are really, really versatile in practice, but when you sit down and read them, the versatility is just not apparent. Like, we're doing all these great, cool things with them, but we don't actually tell anybody how to do them. People are just sort of figuring it out on their own. Um, of course, at the same time, I, I should interject that I had started using skill challenges for my Legacy Era campaign. Uh, this would have been before the Legacy Era campaign guide was even even uh, done being written and developed. Okay. And so I had been using skill challenges for, my, for myself just because... I liked them, and I thought, hey, wait a minute, this is one of the things we want to introduce later in Saga Edition. And um, so I'd been using them for a while, and I saw that, you know what, it can work just as well in Saga Edition as it does in D&D. We just have to actually tell people how to use them. So when it came time for me to write the Skill Challenges chapter of Galaxy of Intrigue, I basically compiled a big list of all the neat things that people have done with their Skill Challenges and adventures and, uh, you know, just in their home games, and started setting those aside and picking the best ones and sort of distilling them down into their core mechanical bits. And uh, then I sat down to write the, the skill challenges chapter and I said, okay, every complaint that I've heard from people about skill challenges, every question they have, uh, every issue people have, I want to address that in some way. I want to basically say to the reader of, of Galaxy of Intrigue, this is how you use this system. This is the answer to the questions that you're going to have. Uh, these are some cool things that you can do with them. Because I knew that if if we presented skill challenges like we had did in the initial 4E DMG in Galaxy of Intrigue, they would vanish into the ether and no one would use them. And it would be like a cool system that never met its potential because it's not it's not in the core rulebook. It's an optional system, and it, it's just frankly it's harder to get people to use optional systems um, than it is to get people to use systems that are in the core rulebook. So uh, I knew that the big challenge ahead of me was to get people to like skill challenges enough and understand them well enough that they would actually use this optional system. And the end result is the the Galaxy of Intrigue skill challenge system. Nice, I, I'm pleased with it, and it, everything, everything as you describe it, you know, to, I, as I as I look through the chapter again right now, and I, I see how it, it's broken down in sort of this logical. Okay, here you go, and oh, and by the way, here's 20 examples of putting it together. Yeah, that was the uh, other big thing I knew was that a lot of people uh, had said this sounds like a neat system, but nobody told us how to do this. We don't even know what this looks like in play, and like that was the that was the biggest thing that I realized was the the stumbling block for a lot of people. Um, was that we hadn't provided anybody with an example of play in the 4E DMG. So it was like, here's the system. Isn't it cool? And then people looked at it and said, great, I know how to resolve this. What does this even look like during gameplay? No one had any idea. I mean, do you tell your players you're in a skill challenge or do you not tell your players you're in a skill challenge? And, you know, does that break immersion or does it not break immersion? Or, you know, right. do I tell them successes? Do I tell them these skills? I mean, 
we had there were a lot of things that we just didn't bother telling people how to use and we didn't when i was set under the one for saga edition i knew right away that a key part of this chapter was going to be the example of play because a lot of people just you know when you when you read the 4e dmg it's like this is great but i don't even know how i would use this in play so i took the opportunity to write this sort of extensive example of play so that people would could could sort of sit down as a fly on the wall and watch this gaming session in progress and see how all these big elements of a of really a completely new way of resolving conflict um see how they all sort of fit together to create a narrative because that's the other big thing is i love skill challenges because i like mechanics that help me create a narrative and at the same time you know award xp and act as a a reasonable challenge because it's really easy when you're you know role playing uh, and just having you know, a nice role playing encounter between two people yeah you create a good narrative but you're not necessarily challenging the opponent or challenging the players to overcome their opponents or or what have you like that so skill challenges give you that nice narrative flow while at the same time being an actual you know challenge to their their character's abilities i mean a lot, a lot of times role sorry uh, but a lot of times role playing encounters tend to be the thing that the charismatic character really enjoys but that the or charismatic player really enjoys the the guy who's really into role playing but then the the more shy quieter characters or, or players or the people who really aren't into a lot of role playing they end up just sitting there going okay I'll wait here while you know while, while Trogdor bargains with the uh with the city guard about the five copper entrance fee and <laughs> A skill challenge lets everyone participate, whether or not you enjoy, you know, chatty role playing, or whether or not you just want to do things. So, yeah, well, that, that makes per- that makes perfect sense. And Dave, you know that like TJ, one of the things she always uh, com- complains about, and one of the reasons she likes making skillful characters is because she is is very, especially at the table, she's not so much shy and quiet. Uh, excuse me, sh- uh, shy and quiet, but it's one of those things where, you know, okay, I-, I can sit here and if you give me about 10 or 15 minutes, I can probably come up with a nice intellectual argument to make for this role-playing encounter, but darn it, you know, I, I want to get through this, and I may not be able to be that eloquent, but darn it, my character sure is. So how how can that be represented? And furthermore, from the opposite angle, when you have a player that is, you know, extremely eloquent and a good role player, but they have a, a persuasion score of a persuasion modifier of, you know, plus one, they shouldn't be able to talk their way out of certain things. So I'm just very pleased because it, like you say, it's a way to involve everyone and sort of in, in, in something more complex and more meaningful than a single die roll, which, you know, usually solves those two problems. But it's, yeah, dude, fantastic work. Yeah, I, I really wanted to also make sure and talk about, you know, here's what a skill challenge is, but here's what it isn't, right? Like, a skill challenge doesn't replace all your role-playing encounters, and a skill challenge doesn't replace single skill checks and stuff like right. that. It's just another tool in your toolbox, right? It's another exactly. thing that you can use to move the story forward. So uh, that's another, like, there, there are several sidebars specifically throughout this chapter that basically yes. say, okay, if it sounds like this is a replacement for, say, your role-playing encounters, it's not. Still have all of your role-playing encounters, but when it comes time for that chase sequence, use these rules. When it comes time for that tense negotiation that you want everybody to participate in, 
use these rules, right? That's it's it is in no way a replacement for any of the things you've already been doing. It's just an add-on. I loved the, the the various sidebars in the chapter where you specifically call out, okay, so you're a player, so what? What does that mean for you? Here's how best to play in the skill challenge. By the way, this is not a substitute for role playing. By the way, non-contributing skills, how do they factor in? You know, transparency of the skill challenge. Um, and then and then just just going on and on and on and on. You know, harder checks at higher levels as it goes. You know, a, a specific uh, sidebar that calls out a bulleted list. Hey, this situation is probably not going to be a skill challenge. Terribly useful. Yeah, it's it's important. Like one of the things that I think the fourth edition did a really great job mechanically is increasing transparency. I, and but what I mean by transparency is making it obvious to the person reading the book. You know, this is what's going on, like either mathematically or or power wise or whatever, and not sort of creating this layer of obfuscation. I wanted to make sure we did the same in Saga Edition for skill challenges because I wanted people to realize, you know what, this is exactly how these things work. I'm I'm giving you a new subsystem. I need you to understand exactly how you're supposed to use these things in your game. And to do that, I just I, I talk directly to you. I say, okay, this is what this is. This is not what this is. And I think that's actually been one of the contributing factors to the success of the chapter is that, you know, I tried not to mince words whenever possible. I tried to answer all the questions. And, you know, to be fair, I had the advantage of two years of studying people's reactions to skill challenges in fourth edition when writing this so it's i I hope that i did a better job than we did initially in you know fourth edition just because i've had two years to collect questions right like that's the biggest thing is i've i've been able to listen to what has caused confusion and address those things up front so that hopefully it doesn't cause confusion any further down the line fantastic well very good um, so from all of us to you, thank you, <laughs> because it is it was much needed. Also, I'm so pleased to finally see uh, Table 2-1 two, two, uh, Skill Challenge DCs by level. Very nice. So I can finally challenge my level 17 party with a, you know, a reasonable used computer check. No, so that's actually the same, same table from uh, both Scum and Villainy and uh, Galaxy at War. Oh, okay. So it, it's, it's identical? Uh, mathematically, yes. Oh wow, that's great. Basically, basically the the skill DCs by level chart that we've used in in both of those books is based on I I did this crazy Excel sh- spreadsheet that said okay what are the uh, skill bonuses of characters at these various levels if they have no training if they have training uh, but a bad ability score if they have training and a good ability score. If they have training focus and a bad ability score, training focus and a good ability score. If they spend a force point, if they spend, uh, if they have a talent that lets them reroll, etc. And basically, this long extrapolation across twenty levels of basically the average skill bonuses for characters with all these different things. And so the the various difficulties, the easy, medium, moderate, hard, heroic, are all based on the average numbers. And basically, I said, okay, you should have a sixty-five percent chance of succeeding on the skill check if you have these certain things uh so for example i think you can only succeed or that you succeed like 65 percent of the time on a heroic skill check if you uh, are trained in a skill focused in a skill have a high ability score have a piece of equipment that gives you a benefit uh and spend a force point and uh get a result of four or higher or something like that right <laughs> and, and that's why heroic dcs don't often get used very much but for that one guy that has 
done the complete crazy i can use computer better than anybody else on the planet that's who that's who these dcs are for right like you this is going to challenge you and you invest all these resources and there's going to be a good reward but this is the number to challenge you gotcha gotcha cool well uh dave are you still on i don't know if he's if he stepped away from what i think i think he had a uh, something he wanted to to chime in with um but if not we can move on to i guess the the next section here um which was going to be the equipment chapter and for far away of, of all the questions we got the the crunchier stuff was here and i kind of wanted to, to to get through some of the questions we had um and then move on to some of the real juicier um uh, uh design and development questions we got from from our audience um in terms of equipment uh Cyril and Pakuni had a lot of stuff that they they gathered from all over the interwebs and brought in. Um, and just a, a few quick questions. Um, the first one was poisons and toxins, uh, page 65. Um, regarding the, the poison section, there doesn't seem to be any prices listed in either Galaxy of Intrigue or anywhere else we've been able to find. Are the prices meant to be left to GM purview, or is there something in one of the other books that we're not seeing? Uh, yeah, poisons are actually sort of in this... Uh general wild west of game design in saga edition uh, known as hazards basically they are a part of the game that sort of that, that i don't feel like got enough attention and in fact you'll see in the unknown regions we actually put a lot more attention on on hazards uh in fact there's a whole chapter about hazards but gotcha. anyways um as far as poisons go it's definitely up to the dm purview because uh these are the these are sort of Things that we want only introduced into a campaign if the DM approves it, not things that players can just go out and buy. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Um, a couple poison-specific questions. Um, Deveronian blood poison on page 65. Um, just to confirm, I guess, of, of uh, people, people are assuming it's a misprint. The, the attack roll is listed as 1d10 plus 5. Is, should it be 1d20? Or? Yeah, it's just, it's just a typo. It should be okay. 1d20. And uh, also, we had a question about Quangush uh, Essence, cool name, uh, on page 65, where uh, the poison causes the target to become blind, and then it states that all targets gain concealment against the affected creature. Should that be concealment or total concealment? Is it like is it partial blindness or full blindness? Um, it is basically uh, while you were once you're blinded, you should have total concealment. So it's just okay. the word total got left off there. Okay, easy. Um, a couple other equipment questions we had. Uh, love this. The redirection crystal, page 67. Uh, several posters have asked for clarification on this item. Uh, mainly, first of all, is this a one-time use item? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. And if, if it is, how does it work with rapid shot or auto fire? Uh, it, it still works within the context of basically it's all one attack. Um, okay. So if you want a in in world description, it's basically like the the blaster bolts from your rapid shot uh, hit it fast enough that they go through before it's destroyed. Okay. Easy. Um, I guess the other individual equipment question we had was uh, componentization upgrade. Uh, page sixty-eight. Cool upgrade for this book. Um, and uh, Pukuni relates, um, neither the basic nor the deluxe version of this upgrade has any cost or availability tag associated with it. 
I can't give you that off the top of my head, um, but I will make a note of it for uh, the hopefully soon to release errata. Okay, good. Um, excellent. Um, all right. Well, let's let's go ahead and move on um, to I guess campaigns, uh, factions, and organizations. Uh, we had one quick thing we wanted to talk about. Now I, I know much of the sections uh, relate back to our uh, much of this section relates back to our very first question. Um, kind of were you, were you guys were you really talking about the uh, the impetus of the book and the point behind it? Um, and it really much like Scum and Villainy and Galaxy at War provides this GM with this nice guidebook um, and creativity sparking option guide uh, with you know campaign ideas and goals as well as these you know, intriguing factions to pitch your heroes against. But okay, man. Far and away, most people are talking about the Kashyyyk resistance, and Shibuda has has to know. Did you sneak in the holiday special reference with the Wookiee Freedom Fighters, <laughs> or or did you get approval uh, that he thought Uncle George still cringed at the mention of his dark side creation? Uh, well, everything is obviously you know approved by <laughs> Lucasfilm, so uh, I actually didn't write that section. Um, so I I think it sort of got snuck in by the author. That's great. Uh, and Shibuta, of course, says, and by the way, thank you for your hard work on the saga system. Sure. Um, excellent. Well, let's get to some let's get to some fluffy stuff, guys. And and Gary, I know you've been you've been a little woefully quiet quiet, but I I I, I want to give you the opportunity to unmute your mic with some excellent questions we've had, starting with uh, Nerion, uh World of Intrigue. So, Galaxy of Intrigue introduces us to this this new and amazing place to set adventures in. This this world of Nereon, this this wonderfully fleshed out world of intrigue and deal making with with parts and parcels found nowhere else in the galaxy, and gamers are in love with it. Uh, so, obviously, this is pretty self evident. But Paul Klein wanted to know who wrote the Nereon chapter. <laughs> that was Gary. That was Gary. Is Gary on? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> It seemed like it was self-evident. I thought you were just being rhetorical. Oh, but um, uh, yes, yes, it is self-evident. Yeah. Well, you know, you can answer rhetorical questions. You know, I do all the time. People look at me funny too. Um, so there you go. Uh, so he's also said, for that matter, who wrote the adventure of the Perfect Storm? And uh, he was also curious to know who was responsible for Point Nadir, Point Nader from uh, Scum and Villainy. Guilty. 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 Yeah. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, then, Cyril had a question for you, sir, and he was dying to know, can you describe the process of writing the Nerean chapter? Uh, he said he, for one, would be very interested in hearing your design process for this kind of world and this kind of chapter. Uh, the process. Well, the process, it starts with the outline that Rodney sends to the, uh, the freelancers. And um, it, it, it follows my normal creative process, which is I'd, I'd brainstorm. I figure out, okay, what do I need to do? Uh, within the confines of the assignment I've been given. And in this particular case, Rodney said, we need a planet of intrigue. We need a planet that has a very rare uh, commodity that is that makes it more valuable. And we need to make this a planet where intrigue is a daily occurrence. So uh, I sit down. I, I try to come up with, you know, a, a, a really unique environment for the players to run around in. Um, every time I, I come up with a, a new place, I want to think about a hook that might draw players or GMs to use that place on that, that planet or in that location. Uh, the characters, I mean, it's just, it, it 
it ends up being layer upon layer, really. I start out with a very general overview, and then I start to narrow it down. Um, one of the more, uh, I guess it was a harrowing experience, was coming up with that whole timeline, because one of the, the requirements for this was it had to span, you know, pretty much every era that, that any Star Wars GM would be running in, uh, from Old Republic mm-hmm. all the way to uh, the Legacy era. So trying to fit it all together and make sure it made sense and god's hope it did (laughs) um it it you know it's it's a fun process for me i really like putting those things together i like putting things together that people haven't seen before that weren't necessarily part of the universe prior to me writing them um rodney definitely gives you some direction but when you know at the end of the day it, it, it comes out being my baby and i'm kind of responsible for it um does that cover it is that is that enough (laughs) (laughs) there's really there's really no specific uh, method i use really i mean it's would this be neat uh does it make sense everything's got to be very cohesive everything has to be consistent i don't want to throw stuff on a wall right that, that doesn't make sense that doesn't that doesn't jive but on the other hand, sometimes I throw things in there, you know, that that might not necessarily agree with everybody. I seem to remember reading something on when when Galaxy of Intrigue was first being released. I was I was scanning the Wizards boards because I wanted to see what people were thinking about the planet chapter. And one guy, his, his the entirety of it was a disgusting planet named Nerian. So <laughs> I guess Nerian is kind of a disgusting place given all the fungus and. Uh, <laughs> and no, I didn't. I didn't draw from my own Jokic experiences on that one. It just, oh, I, just, I, I wanted a different kind of ecosystem. <laughs> I wanted a different kind of, um, you know, a different kind of planet for players to play on. I didn't want trees or grass. I wanted something a little more earthy. <laughs> <laughs> earthy, got it. God, I'm writing. I'm writing that in the book right now in pencil. Earthy, earthy. That's for for my descriptive notes. Very nice. Well, okay. So, so what's your favorite part of Nerian? Uh, frankly, I'm in love with the whole force nullifying atmosphere thingy. Um, what, what was what was your what was your favorite thing you saw fleshed out in that chapter? Well, the sitting down originally and trying to figure out how people could get onto this planet and get off of this planet mm-hmm. in a way that made sense, in a way that was technically feasible. That was kind of tough. And uh, despite the fact that they're probably mechanically prohibitive to a lot of people, the gondola system that they use to get down to the planet, at least in the the early phases of uh, colonization, mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually kind of like it because it's it's very uh, it's very low tech, and Star Wars is generally a very high tech sort of universe. But the whole low-tech approach to getting down to the planetary surface, it, it using what you have to make a difference to get where you need to go, as opposed to just flying down through the atmosphere and and landing. Right. I, I like that. Well, it. I mean, this is obviously self-evident, but it it puts a it seems to put like a hard boundary on the core of the world, which in really in relation to the entirety of the book itself. In other words, 
you know, Galaxy of Intrigue, you know, as Roddy, as you said earlier, a big book of secrets, basically. This is it. It's, it's, it's a secretive planet. It's so secretive that it's even, it's, it's almost encased in this impermeable bubble of, of travel, of transmission, of, of everything. And what's going on inside and down there is, is intriguing. And, you know, it, well, bravo, dude. Very nicely done. Thank you. I'm glad people liked it. I was, I was kind of worried. I wondered if, if it would, I mean, point near people tended to like point near a lot. And yeah. I was proud of that. And I, I was hoping that Nerian would, would have the same kind of reception. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to watch these things evolve because usually what happens is I've started out like when I sent the, the initial outline to Gary for scum and villainy, for example, I said, okay, Here's what I need. Shadow port built into a comet. Go. Right? And then for Galaxy of Intrigue, I was like, okay, planet covered in an ion layer that people can't get through, has a, uh, a valuable mineral, and I think I probably specified uh, one or two other little details, and I was like, go on top of that. And then uh, over the course of, of Gary writing it and it coming back to me, and then uh, revisions during development and stuff like that, it, the, the thing, the, these settings have sort of evolved into a you know a kind of rich and, and new place that I hope people really like. And the you know another interesting fact about Nerion is Nerion is not the original name for the planet that uh that Gary gave it. Gary, do you remember what you originally called it? Yeah, it was uh I originally called it Sturm, which is it's a it's a Gaelic word for storm and right. it was kind of my it was kind of my my working name for the planet. Um and so every so often after the book when the book was about to be released you know sometimes people talk about it and they'll talk about plants so i do a, a search on you know sturm which is actually spelled s-t-o-i-r-m and i wouldn't find anything and then eventually I, I realized that no it's actually been renamed and i wondered why and actually rodney maybe you can tell me why you renamed it uh basically what happened was during the editing process the editors sort of came back and said look this word um it you know it's it's a real word because apparently one of our editors had uh, looked up the gaelic uh word Sturm and basically said, first of all, it's a real word, and while they've done that occasionally in Star Wars, we don't, you know, necessarily like to do that. Plus, it sort of looks like a misspelling of storm, which obviously it has the same roots there. And so they, the editors, uh, said that they they felt they wanted to change it, uh, and then we bounced the idea off Lucasfilm, and they were fine with it. And uh, the name Nerion actually ended up coming out as basically a uh, a way to create a slightly more alien sounding. Uh, planet name in the the sort of Star Wars milieu. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not too big an ego to say, hey, <laughs> my work is perfect. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm perfectly happy with the way the chapter turned out. I don't have any regrets. Yeah, it's a good chapter. Yeah, after after it went through, uh, you know, after Gary wrote it and passed it back to me, then I went through and uh, actually we were writing this simultaneously, so. Uh, he hadn't seen the skill challenge stuff, so then I took the skill challenge material and wrote skill challenges that you find throughout the chapter here, um, basically, because I was like, well, you know, we've got this new system, might as well use it, uh, and and gave it to, and, and gave it a, a pass-through with, you know, an eye towards what kind of skill challenges would you use on Nerion. And I think it, think it, it, it definitely turned out to be a an intriguing planet that, it's nice because you kind of go there and you don't have to worry about outside interference because the planet's got this sort of natural shield against outside meddling, which leaves all the room for, you know, inside meddling. 
gotcha. Well, that's actually that's actually not entirely true. I did have the skill challenge system, at least the bare bones of it, because I needed those for the adventure. Oh, that's true. That's true. But but we didn't eventually. I mean, originally, we didn't have the word count. Uh, right. You know, specified right. for skill challenges within the planet section. So. Gotcha. We found space. <laughs> and we're glad. Um. Well. Okay. So, continuing on with that, Kiri and Rodney. Um. So after Nereon, obviously we have Intrigue Encounters um, and and The Perfect Storm. So Galaxy of Intrigue contains, very similar to Scum and Villainy, um, eight mini-adventures uh, for ready use in a campaign or a quick game, as well as a full adventure, The Perfect Storm, which takes place on Nereon. Um, Gary, we had one specific question from Pakuni about this. Um, he, he asks, uh, the book's closing adventure, uh, The Perfect Storm, uh, doesn't give an indication of the appropriate character level. All it says is that it's designed for four heroes. He says, judging from the CLs of the skill challenges and the combat encounters, I'd say it's designed for, you know, low-level heroes, maybe maybe three or four, but it would still be nice to know uh, what the intended target was. Uh, I believe my intended target was between five and seven. Okay. If you look at most of the encounters, most of them are challenge level six. Um so yeah, it, it was it was originally between five and seven. If it's too easy, <laughs> we can always bump it up a couple notches. <laughs> gotcha. Well, talk to us, um, I guess, about the design and the goals of the mini adventures. And did you? Um, I mean, were you only responsible for the perfect storm, or did you also have a hand in the uh, the the mini adventures as well? No, perfect storm was was my only. I mean, that was what I did aside from the planetary chapter because we wanted the okay. adventure at the end of the book, the big adventure, to have something to do with Nerian. Right, right, right. Um, I have written the mini-adventures before in other books, Galaxy at War being one of them, but uh, I didn't write any of the mini-adventures in this one. Okay, well then, I guess this is then this is going to be for both you and Rodney, in terms of both the mini-adventures and the Perfect Storm. T- talk to us about the design and the goals. What, I mean, were, were these were each one of these designed to really, really showcase off this particular book, or were there, there specific elements that you were going for in these encounters and and in this adventure that you were were hoping to see the players pull from from this book or other sources. Well, let me tell you a little something about the mini adventures. Is <laughs> they are by far the hardest thing to do in these books. Um, <laughs> like the, nothing has caused more headaches and hair pulling than the mini adventures. Uh, partly because the the format necessitates creating basically two pages worth of a description of adventure and then a two-page uh, encounter spread, and it's not always easy to judge how uh, the text is going to fit onto a page with a uh, uh, with a map. So some of the turnovers we get are like two pages too long. It's like okay, well this doesn't fit on a single spread, so we've got to get this back down aside. So we end up ha- hacking and slashing at it, and then have to go through the adventure and make sure okay, is any of the stuff that we cut out relevant? Okay, yes it is. Now we have to go back and do this other thing, uh, and it's just. Trying to condense a, a night's worth of adventuring into four pages uh, is, I, I say this with fondness, but it is a logistical nightmare. And it, <laughs> it's been very, very difficult. Uh, in, in fact, I, like, I have no problem saying that the adventure content is by far the hardest thing about any of these books to get right. Um, as for the goal of the mini-adventures, we really, I just wanted to, uh, A, get more adventure content out there, B, give uh, Game Master something they can pull out of the book really, really fast and run if they don't have anything prepared. Uh, C, give our uh, freelancers a chance to sort of flex their creative muscle because usually I don't, I don't 
give them a whole lot of oversight over what content I want in there. I just want my my uh, uh, my freelancers to give me something creative and interesting uh, for an adventure, and then also, you know, basically, it's it's a chance for us to uh, showcase some of the things that happen. Or that that we that we feature earlier in the books, so you notice that a lot of these have skill challenges built into them, uh, and that's you know we we wanted to make sure people uh, you know, saw this is how you integrate these into a into an adventure. Cool, Gary. Uh, as far as the perfect storm goes, I mean, I mean, s- same ideal, or, or were you were you shooting to include specific elements? Was there, you know, did this bring in any any ideas from any any past work you've done, or is something you've been mulling over for a while, or Talk to us about the design. I wanted to make sure I touched on a lot of the different elements of, of Nerian so that players who are new to the planet, which would pretty much be anybody who was just coming in, you know, off the street, um, they would see how different factions might work together or against one another. It would also introduce them to the environment, uh, to the, the, the major power players, which in the adventure, uh, corporate sector authority plays a very big negative role. But right. it's also it's also flexible enough that you can take that and transport it to any era, or uh, if you want to, just replace the corporate sector authority with the empire. Right. Uh, it's completely up to you. I also wanted to make sure that players got to rub elbows with the natives because the natives are also a big part of of uh, Nerian. Um, I was I was constantly reading what I was writing about the the. The natives and thinking, God, I, I don't want these guys to come off like you know the Fremen from Arrakis. I want them to be their own <laughs> specific thing. Um, so that was kind of a fine line for me to balance. But I also wanted them to be unique, and I wanted players to be introduced to them, as well as giving them an encounter that involved the local uh, flora and fauna. Um, and then, of course, the whole overriding epic reason for the adventure itself, which is preventing the corporate sector from well this is a spoiler i don't know should i even mention it uh your your call uh, fair fair enough we'll do this um spoiler alert just don't listen for the next 30 seconds if you don't want to hear anything about this adventure so yeah okay Go yeah, this is gonna work out great by the way why <laughs> oh nothing i can just imagine like people driving down the road listening to the podcast frantically trying to hit mute on their radios <laughs> like or or god forbid like sticking fingers in their ears while driving and trying to drive with their knees well no, okay no, let's, no. let's just put it this way uh, the corporate sector authority is trying to do something very very big that's going to affect the planet um in a, in a very negative way for a lot of people and depending on what side of the argument you're standing on this could be a positive thing for you uh as a player in the in the in the, the scenario right uh, you're obviously on the side of good, um, and you know morality being relative. Uh, <laughs> so it's all about stopping the corporate sector from doing the bad thing, and um, it is actually fairly epic, at least in relation to Nerian. And if if it happens on Nerian, if if Nerian is completely affected the way that the corporate sector wants it to be, it's going to change the planet completely. However. Just because Nerian has been changed, it's not going to change anything on Coruscant, really. You know, it's not going to it's not going to affect any of the other planets. They're not really going to care as long as that commodity is still there. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I just wanted to I wanted it to be an epic adventure with drastic consequences if the players failed. Uh, I really hope that came across. And I also wanted to make sure the players had repercussions from 
the opposing faction, which is all, all about what Encounter Eight is is about, is about uh, them getting their just desserts for what they've done. Right. Now, I, I will say, if, if I do take away one thing from this conversation, it is that I, when I run this adventure, I will now thank Fremen just uncontrollably when uh, when I think of the Nerian natives. You know, seriously, they're going to walk up to the PCs and be like, you know, spice must flow. Could he be the one? Yes. <laughs> Shai Hulud. Shai Hulud. Very nice. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, bottom line, th- this is a great book. And for those of you who are listening, I mean, we, we say this a lot, but again, it, I mean, no, no one, no, no one has really dogged out any book that's been released so far. But, but this is a, this is an excellent one, and uh, just for the new mechanics, for for the the fluff, the what it can bring to your game, it's certainly worth picking up. So, guys, thank you for taking the time to to talk to us about it specifically, answer some questions, um, and if you had the time, we had some non-GOI questions um, if you were willing and able. I'm game. Cool. Yeah, sure. Sure, go for it. Um, so a little bit about Star Wars Saga and the future. We had some people write in. So since we've talked to you both last, obviously Watsi has made the announcement that the Star Wars line is coming to an end. Um, and I, just to pause, I, I am echoing scores, scores of posters on our own forums and hundreds on Watsi's in saying thank you. Thank you for what you have accomplished and what you've given us. It is, it is brilliant. Um, I appreciate that. I, it really means a lot. Um, I know that things have been rocky uh, at times on the uh, the line, but it's uh, uh, even even now in a in a time when you know we're sort of facing the end of my work on Star Wars, at least for the foreseeable future. It's nice to know that uh, so many people out there have enjoyed what I've been doing. It's easy to forget when all you do is see the uh, criticism and. Uh, Rodney Thompson doesn't know what he's doing because this was a plus three and it should have been a plus four. Okay, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, not by much though. T- typically, you only see the negative, and so it, it's it's really uh, a big honor for me to to get to hear the positive. And the the one good thing that's come out of this announcement is uh, there has been an overwhelming outpouring of of thanks and uh, to all of you out there that have said thanks to me. I have to return that thanks because. Basically, without people out there buying the books, I wouldn't have got to do what I consider to be a mostly complete product line. I mean, sure, there are there are plenty of projects that I could envision myself doing, but I kind of feel like, you know what, at the very least, if I wanted to play Saga Edition for the rest of my life, I could do so without feeling like I'm, uh, you know, without feeling like I'm really missing very much of anything. So... Thanks to everybody that made that possible, which is pretty much everybody that's listening to this and, you know, tens of thousands of other people. Gotcha. Well, again, thank you. Um, now, we do yeah, have some specific... Thank, thank you, Rodney, by the way. Thank you. Because <laughs> it, was always, it was always something I wanted to do. I mean, I had one magazine article before I got to work on Saga uh, that was Star Wars related, and Star Wars was one of those things that since I was... Geez, I don't even remember how old I was, three, when Star Wars, the, the, the first film came out. And my mother took me and we sat in the front row because we got there late. And those were the only seats that were left. But I have a distinct memory of watching Star Wars. And it's always been a big part of my life. I mean, uh, I haven't been as deeply into every portion of the expanded universe as some people. But um, thank you, Rodney, for letting me contribute and and do some work on a stellar line of books 
No pun intended, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, <laughs> my pleasure. It was great having Gary Sterling, other Gary, <laughs> JD, Owen, damn near everybody that's worked on the books. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure to work with you. Very cool. Well, to, to ask some housekeeping questions then, we had a few of them. Uh, Jemmy M. wanted to know, honestly, as many of us do, uh, she, uh, Jemmy writes, I'm interested in your thoughts on the future as well as when we can expect an errata. Uh, considering the line will end soon after the next book, will there be an errata for the, for, for the next book as well as for these other recent releases? I can't say anything about uh, Unknown Regions because I just I honestly don't know what the timing is going to be like. Okay. Um, but I, I did put up uh, some posts on the forums saying, hey, you know, help me collect the things that might need errata. And I have, I have compiled those and am in the process of you know, going through and making sure those things are actually in need of errata and what that errata should be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not a fast process, obviously, because I'm doing it basically <laughs> in my free time. Right. Um, but I am going to try and make sure that before – uh, the the wizard's license ends and are and we no longer are able to post uh, new material that I'm able to get that uh, errata out there for at least the books up through uh, Galaxy of Intrigue. Right. Um, I would I would I would say the same about the unknown regions, but it it really all depends on when the book comes out, how quickly I see if there's any problems. Hey, I'd like to tell you that unknown regions is not going to have any errata because it doesn't need any errata. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to tell you that. I don't know that for sure, but you know how it is. Like if, if time runs out before I can get unknown regions done, that may, that one may just be the one that, that, uh, that you have to live with. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, Athen rogue is curiously hopeful. He says, well, my question is somewhat broader than one particular book. It's prompted by GOI. Um, this book has some fantastic artwork, especially the maps for the encounters and the adventure. And he says, you know, I, like so many others, play via a VTT and, and would love to drop these maps into my game. With the whole license being finished, what are the chances WotC would release any of the artwork for download on the site? They used to do that with their Map a Week stuff, and you can still find some of that stuff on there. And he says, come on, I'm sure those nice big full res pics are just gathering dust on a server. Huh? Huh? Pretty please? Uh, it's one of the situations where the license tends to get in the way, yeah. uh, especially when it comes to art assets and things like that. It's just not as easy. Like on D and D, we can post whatever we want to because it's ours. On Star Wars, it's just it's not the same. Um, I I can't make any uh, any any promises in that regard. Um, I I can say I'll look into it, but I wouldn't get my hopes up, unfortunately. Okay. Um, now Cyril wanted to know, he says, now that we've had the official word that Watsi will not be reloading the license with Lucasfilm, um, I was wondering if you could comment on kind of a perspective, how you saw the game shift from beginning to end. More, more specifically, what did you guys learn about game design as a whole from this project, and what lessons learned are you going to be able to take forward into your next projects? Did you notice things getting easier to write as the game matured, and did they get more difficult when faced with you know coming up and with more new options? You would love to hear your opinions on these questions. Um, and also, once again, he says, please, a huge thank you to Rodney, Gary, everyone else who worked on this amazing system. Well, Gary, why don't you take a crack at this one first? Because I have a feeling once I get talking about it, it might be a while. <laughs> well, uh, I learned the hard way that I don't always have all the time in the world to do the things I, I want to do. Uh, this isn't to say that, that my family isn't something I want to keep track of and want to, to um, you know, nurture, but... Um, my freelancing career uh, has been, it started out 
when I was very young and didn't have children and, <laughs> and I could actually in some instances don't tell my old bosses but you know back in, in, in my purchasing days I could I could do work you know at work I could do work at lunch um, at my desk and these days given my current line of work which is uh, largely MMORPGs I don't have that option uh, creativity is very limited we have to basically focus on what we're focusing on at work and then when we get home or rather when I get home I'm occasionally all written out, and I've got two little kids that, that take up a lot of time. So um, my big learning experience was that I'm not Superman. I'm not Robert Schwab. I can't sit down and write, you know, 10,000 words uh, at one sitting anymore. As far as the line is concerned, I remember having some trouble in uh, the Legacy Era source book coming up with new talents and new feats and new powers for the Force that because there was so much that had been accomplished prior to Legacy Era. Uh, looking at all the stuff that had been done, I, I was confounded. I had to actually go to Rodney and say, look, look at what has been done. What can I do to to add to that? Give me some ideas. And Rodney always is very, he's very forthcoming and he's very easy to work with when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, the line itself, I, I think it's come along really well. I'm sad to see it end. Not only because I would love to write more, but because, well, any game line that I've ever really had an, a vested interest in, from the original second edition Dark Sun um, to uh, Alternity, <laughs> it, I used to joke that I was the only person <laughs> in Southern California who, who would buy the Alternity books. Um, <laughs> I, I've loved those games, and to see them go away, at least uh, out of print, it's sometimes very painful because there's there's that financial investment, but there's also an emotional investment. And just trying to get your players to play a new game sometimes is like pulling teeth or declawing a cat. It's it's not easy. <laughs> and when 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 that game is no longer supported, that kind of gives it a an un, unspoken stigma among some players. Uh, but you know that being said, I, I have shelves and shelves of books that are no longer you know, of games that are not supported any longer. I don't think that that's anything uh, that you need to worry about with Saga. We've got plenty to fall back on. There's also all the original uh, edition books that are still floating around out there from the original D20 books to the right. D6 books. I mean, I've got an entire shelf of D6 books, and, and I love them. Uh, wouldn't give them away for the world. As far as on the, the design front, the, the nuts and bolts of things, I think Rodney... Yeah, it's it's your turn to talk for several minutes about that. <laughs> well, what did we learn working on SAG Edition? Uh, a lot, I'll be honest with you. Uh, if you want a, a complete retrospective of what I learned, it would take many, many hours. But let me just put it to you this way. Um, I started working on the SAG Edition core rulebook when I was a freelancer. It was early 2006, like February, I want to say. When Owen and I um, started working on it, and in in truth, Owen and I started our parts of it a little bit before Chris Perkins did, and uh, before, of course, Gary got his hands on it as well, uh, Gary Sarley. And uh, back then, I I felt pretty confident in my game design skills, and you know, I felt like we we jumped on a lot of really you know kind of, hey, what if we use talents like D20 Modern and this and that, uh, and I feel like you know I I helped create a really solid foundation for a much more streamlined Star Wars game. 
then I got to Wizards and realized how much I didn't know. <laughs> uh, one of the <laughs> one of the best things about working at Wizards of the Coast, of course, is that I'm just constantly immersed in a uh, an environment that is about learning about games and and how games work. And so, um, over the course of even just the first few months of employment at Wizards, uh, Saga Edition taught me tons of stuff about running a product line, for example. I mean, I uh, on every single book. Uh, for Star Wars, after after the core rulebook, I was responsible for outlining the book, or f- first for pitching the book to my boss, Bill Slavicek, for pitching the book to my brand manager, who at the time uh, was Sarah Ritchie, uh, pitching the, bo- the, the book to Lucasfilm, because Lucasfilm also bought off on everything. So one of the first things I learned how to do at Wizards was, here's how you pitch a book to people. And it wasn't really so much, here's how, as figure out how to pitch a book to people. And... Uh, <laughs> So I learned how to pitch books. Then I learned how to do outlines. Uh, I'd done some some outlining for before for uh, freelance projects for like green writing and stuff. But um, you know, I learned how to write a full outline. Then I learned how to manage freelancers, which I'd never had to do before. Even even when I was the lead freelance designer on something, I was never the person responsible for things like that. So um, I learned how to you know. Uh, submit contracts and all the bureaucratic stuff, but I also learned how to monitor their turnovers and provide feedback and make sure the book is developing in the right direction as as uh, milestones come in. We what we do in in uh, with our freelancers is at the quarter half and three quarter marks for uh, the the design period, we have our freelancers turn over a milestone, which is just a turnover of here's what you've done so far, so that we can check it. So I learned how to get uh, freelancers to turn in milestones and how to provide them feedback, and then then I learned how to take an entire book and put it together, and then I learned how to you know to really develop a book, and then I learned how to write art orders, and then I learned how to do art approvals, and so basically, as you can see, I learned how like every part of making a book really works because literally from start to finish I was involved in every step of the process I mean even things like mm-hmm. um, the cover text for all the books I read all the cover text for the books um, you, you know a lot of books that's marketing people but that was me so any anytime you picked up a book gun god this is the worst back cover text I've ever read that that was me <laughs> so you know I've I've literally learned how every part of a book works uh, and then on game design I it really it wasn't as quickly of a trial by fire but with regards to game design uh saga edition over the first year or so we really started to see how the math behind the game really affected gameplay and uh if i if i could send myself back in time uh i would change well i won't say i would change but i would tell myself two things when i was designing saga edition i would say look do the math first and make the, the game master's job easier, right? Those are like the two big things that really quickly became apparent because uh, not only was, uh, you know, I, I starting to run, like I, I now play and run more more games than I ever have in my entire life. So I was starting to run more Star Wars than I ever had and I was quickly realizing, okay, man, wow, we need to do some things to help the, uh, help the game master out. And so, you know, Saga Edition very quickly taught me the importance of um, making a game game master friendly and i think we did a pretty good job in a lot of ways i know that we've put a lot of tools in the game master's hands over the course of the uh the product line but there are things that could be done to make it even easier right and i i see that now and of course hindsight is always going to be 2020 but um 
Saga Edition also taught me uh, about you know dealing with fans because previously I would hop online and say, hey, you know what? I uh, I wrote this article for Dungeon Magazine or whatever. What'd you guys think? And people were like, yeah, it was all right. You know, <laughs> on on working on Saga Edition, I really had to be the face of of the game in a lot of ways, and so I mean that's why I'm here on this podcast for one and. Uh, it really taught me a lot about just interacting with people. There were people you, that you, have. You mean you mean you're not here to enjoy our sparkling company? Well, I'm here to enjoy Gary's company. You guys are a bunch of chumps that make fun of me every time I come on. Yeah, Rodney and I only get to see each other, you know, at, at Gen Con. He's missed the last two. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, one of the things you learn very quickly is, you know, to be able to take feedback from fans, not let it affect you personally, but at the same time, hear people's complaints. I mean, like I was talking about earlier with the. The skill challenges. When people complain about your game, they're not complaining because because they, you know, have some predisposed love of complaining necessarily. I mean, a few people do, but most I would I would even say most of the people that post like on the Wizards forums or on the Holonet or on Order sixty six, if they have a gripe about something, you at least have to hear them out, right? Like you have to figure it out. And a lot of times, uh, this is another thing I really quickly learned is someone would be complaining about something. And I would realize, um, you know, they're they're complaining about this, but what their actual problem is with the game is this other thing over here. And they, you know, maybe they don't realize it or whatever. And I was like, if I can fix this other thing over here, that will actually solve this this first problem that they're <laughs> complaining about. So, you know, it that that's a big learning experience. I mean, learning how to react to to fans and, and things like that. That's that's a huge part of it. Um, I think uh, we learned very quickly how to uh, how the best ways are to mess up gameplay, and most of those ways have to do with the condition track and uh, skills. So, like within six months of of uh, let's see here, I guess it would have been around the time that Force Unleashed came out. Uh, I had really realized I was like, wow, okay. These are things that we need to avoid doing in the future because they can really, really mess up the game. I mean, anything that moves you down the condition track can very rapidly escalate into, wow, this is, this is a problem because it stacks with everything else. Like, we, we don't have a bonus types for condition track movement, so there's right. no way to limit stacking, right? I mean, that was something we really, really quickly learned. And, you know, we, we learned very fast that uh, players will seek out every possible advantage and exploit it. And I should know that already. You'd think I would know that already. But uh, the after about six months, the phrase "Yeah, but nobody's going to do that" never left my lips again. Right? That just didn't. Uh, that 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 phrase left my vocabulary essentially. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've kind of rambled on about like these random things that I've learned as a game designer. But uh, basically, for Saga Edition, we had a really strong starting point as far as like the general structure of the game, talents and feats. And some things were a little less well-defined, but I feel like we addressed most of those. Like um, droids is a really good example of one of those systems that I feel like didn't get as much attention right, right off the bat as it could have, uh, but then we did a whole book on it, and I feel like droids now are in, yeah. in pretty good oh, shape. Yeah. I mean, they, oh, yeah. still, there are still some issues, but uh, I feel like they eventually got to be in, in pretty good shape, right? Yeah. And so, you know... Really, the the strong foundation of the like the talent system made it very easy for us to create a game that players could, with just the core rulebook, you know, do a whole lot with. So thereafter, the big challenge was 
how do we make this that easy, right? Because it, it's easy to relatively easy to use the talent system. How do we make these other things that easy and fun to use? So we had a nice nice watermark with the with the core rulebook there, and um, yeah, it, uh, I actually think it was kind of a big advantage for us having the the big gap between uh, the core rulebook coming out and then Starships of the Galaxy coming out, uh, or yeah, Starships was the first supplement, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, boy, it's been a few years, and I've slept and drank since then. Um, but <laughs> the uh, the we had, we actually kind of had a big advantage because it meant that we had like eight months of players just chowing down on the uh, on the core rulebook and bending it and twisting it, and it really helped me get a really strong understanding of this is how our game actually works. Like in practical play, this is how this works. And there was that big gap, and so I could see, okay, this is this is the this is what the core rulebook. This is the game it produces when tossed into the wild, without all kinds of supplements that just that frankly just complicate your vision of what the game is, right? So, right. you know, we I had the really big advantage of being able to see, okay, this is how uh, this is how I can this is the game I can move forward with, you know, from this point. Whereas, you know, when you're designing a game, even if you play test it. You don't know how it's going to look in the wild, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, now to, to, to build on, <laughs> yeah, to build on something you just said, you talk about you know you, you see an issue and you then you, you okay wow we need to do something about this so we do. Steel Wind had a question for you. He said somewhat retrospective. There are always things that have not been done that we might wish had been turned out otherwise. But of the things that you have managed to do as a result of sitting in the helmsman's chair for Saga. What is the one thing that maybe almost didn't happen or that you had to fight for that you are the most happy that got in the system that, that is there now? Oof. Uh, I might say Dawn of Defiance to that answer. And I, and I won't say that I had to fight for it, but Dawn of Defiance was a project that we did not have a lot of resources for. And so I said, you know what? We don't have the resources, but I feel really, really strongly that we need an adventure path, right? We need to show people what an iconic Star Wars Saga Edition campaign actually looks like. Because a lot of times I feel like, especially with games that aren't like D&D or, or uh, World of Darkness or any of the really big games, people don't know what a, a full campaign actually looks like because most people don't get that far, right? I mean, right. E- even, in, even in D&D, most people don't get out of, uh, in 4th edition, out of the heroic tier, right? Most people don't play past like 12th level and 13th edition it's just like we we have statistics that show this right we we do studies most people's games stop before like level 10 and and so a lot of people just don't know what a full saga edition campaign looks like so i felt really strongly about that and i was like you know what that's fine i'll just write six of these adventures myself well that didn't happen (laughs) (laughs) i think i wrote did i write four yeah i wrote four four Uh yeah yeah, and so it was a uh, it was tough. That was easily the the most difficult thing to get out. And as you guys saw, we had tons of delays. But you know, trying to write a thirty two page adventure, which often turned into a fifty page adventure, just because I get a little chatty sometimes when I write. Uh, you know, trying, <laughs> you? Trying, I know, shocking, right? Trying to get that done by yourself in your free time—that's hard. And I didn't realize that. So if 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 it's project wise, that was definitely the one I had to 
uh, had to fight for the most. Probably second most would be we would be Scavenger's Guide to Droids. Uh, that one took a little while yeah. to get off the launch pad, uh, just because a lot of people were like, "Ah, Droids book, really?" And I was like, "Yeah, really. Let's do this." Yeah, really. And, and you're right; it was so needed, and it added so much. Yeah. Um, mechanically, uh, there wasn't really anything I, I had to fight for, to be honest with you. Um, nothing almost didn't make it because when I sat down in the in the captain's chair, so to speak. On uh, on day one, I sort of sketched out a plan. I said, "Okay, this is what the next three years worth of products are going to look like, and this is what I want them to look like." And by me being lead designer and lead developer and uh, product manager and line developer and pretty much everything else on the R and D side of of Star Wars, I pretty much got to put in whatever I wanted to. So I mean, you know, within reason, right? And I I I was lucky that. Both my bosses and Lucasfilm approved almost everything I wanted. So, for the most part, I feel like we really got, you know, got lucky in that respect. That anything I wanted to get in there, I could. And in fact, um, like Bill Slavisek, my my boss, did a lot. Uh, you know, did a lot of work helping me get things like the adventure content in the books. Like originally, I think Scum and Villainy was supposed to be, uh, you know, sixty-four pages shorter and not have adventure content in it. And I said, well, you know, I'd really like to have adventures out there. And he was like, well, let me go talk to you know these other people that are in charge of things like page count and stuff, and and uh, see if we can get you know, get that material in Scum and Villainy. And he did. And then we we did that stuff. So. It was uh, it, it's always been an interesting uh, situation for me in that on Star Wars, pretty much got to do whatever we wanted to do, and I feel like anything you see in a Saga Edition book, for the most part, I had a hand in in getting it in there, and I don't feel like there was anything that I really had to to arm wrestle anybody for. Cool. Okay, then the last question I have, and this is really for both of you. Okay. And it's the converse. So Paul Klein wanted to know if you had your druthers, and if the line wasn't ending, what book would we likely have seen following the Unknown Regions? If it was up to you, what's one thing you would have, you would add? Gary, why don't you tell us what you would add? Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, imagine I came to you tomorrow and I said, you know what? We got one more book, and I'm going to give you the Crown of Command, and you get to say what that book is going to be. I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a slightly spot. less popular book title than you would think. <laughs> well, you know, it's like we've done so much. It's, 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 I'd, I'd say, well, how about something close to, uh, you know, the Spec Ops source book for D6? Oh, wait, we did that with Galaxy at War. Oh, okay. How about, uh, Something like the criminal organizations. Oh wait, we did that with Scum and Villainy. It's it's you know it's there's a there's a lot we've that, that's been done in the line, and it's hard to uh, it's hard to narrow down anything that's really lacking at this point. If I was going to pick something, um, maybe some maybe focus more on the. I mean, I always love the Tapani sector. If we could do a Tapani sector source book, I think that would be awesome. Sure. But it's also a very narrow slice of the Star Wars EU. So yeah. Geez, you put me on the spot. Yeah, I do that. That's sort of my thing. Uh, as for me, I actually um, when I I actually pitched a whole year's worth of products for um, uh, 2010 uh, because we you know we didn't know the license was going to end. Right? It was just one of those things that happened. And um, the the book that I think I was most excited about, but we're not going to get to do, was I wanted to do a like a, a 
campaign guide, like the full 200 and, or, uh, uh, what is it? 220 page. Is that what our, sorry, I've lost, I've lost the ability to count, uh, a full 220 page campaign guide, sort of in the vein of our, our, uh, same vein as our, our like nice little public campaign guide and mm-hmm. legacy air campaign guide. But instead of being an era campaign guide, I wanted to do a, a brand new sector of space, basically a 100% top to bottom brand new, uh, sector that would have been basically the Wizards of the Coast campaign setting. Uh, they sort wow. of did the same thing for Living Force with the the cooler in system, but I wanted to do basically a sector of space, and the book would have been like, here are eight or ten or however many we came up with completely new alien species that you've never seen before that are all from this sector. And here's these planets, and here's you know a new company that produces these vehicles and these weapons and stuff. And basically, the same information you would find in a campaign guide, but for a new sector of space that would be basically like the our own campaign setting. And, you know, theoretically, if that was a success, we would do adventures set in there and, and uh, what have you in the future. Fortunately, that never that, that never uh, came to pass, and uh, I've still got you know all my notes in case miraculously something ever happens that I get to work on Star Wars again and could do it. But uh, it would have just been a, a chance for us to take the the kind of new interesting planets that we're doing in in these uh, genre books, and instead do a whole book that you could give to a game master and say, here's everything you need to know to run a campaign in this sector with characters that are specifically from this sector and, you know, species from the sector and weapons from the sector and stuff like that. Um, there's always been a, a bit of a challenge with, with the, like the, the D20 books, um, Geonosis and the Outer Rim Worlds and Course on the Core Worlds were not hugely popular books. In fact, they were among the least popular uh, D20 Star Wars books. So location books are always a tough sell. Um, and so I wanted to put the same kind of cool player-focused content in this campaign guide that you would have found in you know an era campaign guide. See, that's fascinating because when I look at all the things that you guys have done, all the things you stay true to, years, years of work, staying faithful, imagining and building someone else's sandbox you know what what king george laid down for the masses the most interesting stuff and the best stuff that uh, it kind of self-evident really highlights the skill you guys have are things like nerian things like um the 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 vala things where you're able to carve out a piece of canon on your own and flex your creative muscle that talent comes through and i would have loved to have seen that Eh, maybe you will someday. Who knows? You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I, I would like to think that this is the not not that this is not the last time I will work on Star. Oh, I, I like to think that too. Uh, in relation <laughs> to both of us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at some point my my kids do have to move out. Right. Know, eventually, someday maybe. Someday maybe. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on with us and talking. Non-stop about this and topic and, and many others. And um, gosh, I guess just just uh, I'm, I'm I sincerely hope we can have you on again, Rodney. I hope we uh, that you know when gosh we, we have another book coming out, of course. But sure. even then, non-book related, I hope you'll be still willing and able to come on and jabber Star Wars with us in the oh yeah the absolutely hopeful years to come, as as well as you, Gary. And 
Now, my sure. question. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm still alive. Yay. <laughs> <clears throat> my particular question is, once all the licensing and all that, and if you can't answer this right now, Rodney, I understand, but sure. once all this is over and Watsi's commitment to Lucas is done, are you going to be, or do you foresee yourself being more free to come on our show, our show more often? <laughs> uh, <laughs> From a purely selfish standpoint? Well, I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm not free to come on your show right now. It's just, it's all going to be a matter of time. And, you know, plus, uh, I'm sure that you guys will have, uh, you know, plenty of, of stuff to talk to for a long time to come. So, yeah, I'm, you know me, I'm always willing to, to join you, and I can't, uh, uh, I can't necessarily promise more frequent visits, but at least as frequent visits. How does that sound? <laughs> All right. I, I think we'll take what we can get. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Excellent. Ah, sad panda music. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I hope you guys are uh, have a little bit of time, maybe to stick around for some post-show, but uh, this does bring the end to this particular episode. And uh, once again, big thank you to uh, Gary Osford and Ronnie Thompson for taking time out of their busy schedules to talk to all of us and share a little bit of themselves and this wonderful system and this great book. And uh, it's a good thing. So thank you all. It's been um, my pleasure. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So with that... Um, from all of us to all of you out there, uh, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And keep the dice rolling. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, we didn't talk all the way through the sad, piano, sad panda music. No, no. Do we have to? Is it is it mandatory to talk through all the sad piano, panda music? No, not really. It's just cutting into post-show time, man. It's Just saying. Just saying. Just throwing that out there. I know. All right, fine. Fine, 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 fine. Whatever you say, man. You're, you're... Oh, wait. <clears throat> and may they be full of the force. This is Stephen Hawking, and when I'm not making astrophysics calculations, I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Perkins. I'm the design manager for miniatures and role-playing games at Wizards of the Coast, and I never, ever listen to the Order 66 podcast. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at starwars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. Post-show?
Yes, I indeed. love Rundgren. Huh? It's been a while, you know. <laughs> yeah, I. What is that I, song? It is Bang the Drum All Day by Todd Rundgren. You guys are asking that in the chat. What is that song? You should know that. Y'all should know that. Ah. Yeah. I swear. They, they should know that. I mean, seriously, they may. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Old School said we teased him because I accidentally fired off the dropkick Murphys. <laughs> yeah, that little hey. bomb bump that you heard right in the beginning. And there's nothing wrong with the Dropkick Murphys. You know, as much as I love Rundgren, if you were to replace uh, Bang on the Drum with, with Dropkick Murphys, I wouldn't be entirely upset. Oh, okay. Just just saying. I don't I, I don't know. What about what about you two? Oh. See, that song makes my Scotch Irish wife very happy. So I love that song. It's a good song. What about you? I two? saw you those guys in Columbus, Ohio. No joke, really. Yep, they opened for uh, the Offspring last year. But uh, we got into town like two days before Origins, and uh, there was an Offspring concert that we had bought tickets to, and they were one of the opening acts. Oh, that would be awesome. Yes, it did, was awesome. Did they play this uh, song? This um, uh, oh, what is it? Something or other in Boston. Dang it, I forgot what yes. the name of the song was. Yes, they did. Uh, Shipping see, off to Boston, that's what it is. Rock and roll needs more bagpipe. It's like cowbell, but better. Got to have more bagpipe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cowbell. I love it. Love it. Uh, fantastic. So, Rodney, dude, you just been, you just been a busy sucker, dude. I swear. By the way, it, Dave did announce this last episode, guys, but as a repimp, uh, you recently got uh, met DM Tim up in uh, up in Seattle area to do an interview for Dark Sun, yeah? Uh, that's correct. Uh, he popped by the Wizards' offices and we did a little podcast interview. Nice. Can't wait and, to hear uh, that, man. I, Dave, I mean, I, am I correct, Dave? That's that should be their next episode. Yes, it's supposed I know, to be. I know Tim mentioned he wanted to edit the heck out of it and make it purdy, but yep, it's supposed so. to be. So we're expecting it soon. 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 Yes, I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing how I did. <laughs> well, if your performance on this show is any indication, you'll be all right. I'm I hope sure. So. I'm sure it was. Now, did you you had a uh, you had a Watsy handler with you for this? Uh, yeah, one of the the girls that does our our PR stuff was there to join us. Uh, I I think she might have been there to make sure I didn't say anything I wasn't supposed to, but <laughs> I don't really say things I'm not supposed to anyway. So basically, she just sort of stood there and laughed at me being an idiot on the microphone. <laughs> See, I, you have a proven track record of not violating any constraints that you have. I've luckily done pretty well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So did y'all watch the hockey game? Yes. I watched I watched the uh, the overtime. I oh. heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh when the overtime started I was texting a friend of mine back and forth and and uh, they applied pressure just immediately out of the gate, and my heart was sinking and sinking and sinking. And I texted her and, and uh, said, you know, we're not looking too good. It looks like we're chasing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she texts she texted me back and said, "Hey, we got a shot off, but it sure but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they scored." I got the message. I looked up to the t- TV and they scored. Yeah. Yeah. So I was mad. So Tammy, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> because she predicts things, she sucks. Nah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay. She jinxed them. Dave, okay. Now, I don't know if you Gary Rodney, do you guys know that Dave is like a big curler? I no. did not. Like, like, Dave, you were president of the DFW Curling Club for quite some time. OT Beta, you're about to get yourself kicked out of the chat room. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed the, uh, I do enjoy me some curling. What yes. does the guy have to do to get kicked out of the chat room? Spam. Uh, s- spam it with, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is odd coming from OT Beta. No, it's weird. But yeah, okay. So so Dave Dave got me into watching curling a while back, and so I was like, first of all, I was really I, I was with you, buddy. I was peeved that the U.S. did so poorly. Um, I mean, poorly, bad, but bad, yeah. Um, but yesterday I'm watching the Olympics, and I was watching the bronze medal match between Switzerland Switzerland and Sweden. And let me tell you what, there was a lot of yaw. On that ice, okay? Yeah. A lot of Hurgan and a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... That was I like, that was just I like curling just okay, video. like to watch it, but it's one of those sports that I just don't understand, like, the 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 mechanical underpinnings of it, yet I'm still fascinated by it. I, I just, like, hey, I watch and I'm like, wow. Go to the Granite Curling Club, one of the best curling clubs in the Northwest. It's right in Seattle. Okay. Just go by and visit. Okay, it's 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 you know, it, it looks surprisingly complicated scoring wise. It's really not. Um, uh, I I was surprised once once Dave finally explained it all to me. But uh, dude, it's like it, I don't know, man. And it, it's weird if you go to these curling clubs, especially in like Dallas, and it's like it's like children playing, old people that can barely move are getting out on this on the ice and just doing it. Mm. It's it's interesting. They have they they have things that they hook onto the hacks for people that have um, that are in wheelchairs. So they can go out on the ice and use a stick to to get the rock going, and uh, it's a wheel. They actually have a wheelchair curling national championship. It's gotten so popular with uh, in the wheelchair curling community <laughs> in the north. Huh. The the wheelchair curling community. Yeah, I was going to join that back when I was having back problems, but uh, <laughs> God. Yeah, you know, shuffle, shuffleboard on ice. Oh, fiddle back. Oh, okay. So I mean, but but seriously, Gary, Rodney, have you guys been able to watch a whole lot of the Olympics at all? Or uh, we've actually watched a surprising amount. Like I, I don't usually watch the Olympics that much, but we've watched quite a bit. Any highlights so far that you've just really enjoyed? Lindsey Vaughn is way hot, and I like watching her. Oh, yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. yep. Uh... I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I liked watching Apollo Ono skate because he was awesome. And- Speed skating's pretty cool, I guess. It's like NASCAR on ice. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I, I haven't watched much. I'm, I'm afraid. I, uh, if it's not children's programming, we don't generally watch it at home. Um. Hey, soon to be there with you, buddy. Hey, man, welcome to hell. There's nothing <laughs> like getting a two-year-old to watch the bobsled. I uh I really was disappointed that I have not seen a single instance of biathlon coverage and like if there was ever a sport that I needed to watch 
intently. It was the one where they ski and then shoot a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and then ski more. And then shoot a gun. Right. Hey, I you always, know what? Okay. Th- they broadcast cross-country skiing the other day. Talk about yeah. something that's just, man, what a blast to watch. Yeah. I uh, I always like the Jerry Seinfeld skit about the biathlon. He's like, who invented this sport? I mean, it makes no sense. It's like if the Summer Olympics had an event that was you swim 50 meters and then at the end you choke a guy, right? It's just like, <laughs> what? I'd watch that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'd watch that, too. Oh. Oh, and by the way, uh, uh, William, old school, who is from Glasgow, uh, just just sent me a little message that says, if if you really want some more um, some more bagpipe in your rock and roll, check out the Red Hot Chili Pipers. Uh, the Red Hot Chili that's Pipers. That's pretty awesome. Apparently, mm. yes. Hey, coming from a guy in Glasgow, I believe it. <laughs> Gonna have to go do that. Oh, bad. Yeah, but it just cracks me up. And you know who's the most gaga over the Olympics of any person I know? Cat. Cat. Cat, man. Of all people. She's just like, seriously, I mean, it's like, hey, you want to come be on the podcast when, you know, uh, uh, Chris is like out of town, you know, in Costa Rica on vacation with his wife and all that? I can't. The Olympics are on. <laughs> yeah. Blew off the Order 66 podcast for the Olympics. Ah, cat. Geekapalooza's production schedule has come to a complete halt because of the Olympics. <laughs> I mean, even Game On did not do a show last week because of nope. you guessed the it, the Olympics. The Olympics. Yeah, yeah. it's thank it's, God it's not a yearly thing, I guess, huh? Yes. Oh, man. oh my gosh, dude! I mean, every two years we lose Cat for like three weeks functionally. <laughs> oh man! So yeah, so there it is. Oh man! <sighs> and I'm and just... get, you know, and Cat's not on in the chat room. Uh, no, because, no, for the be, first time in like forever. Because of the Olympics. The Olympics. The closing ceremonies. It, it's over. It's over, but closing but, ceremonies. Yeah, you know, you got to fire off a firework and watch the one guy from Chile show up. <laughs> hey, poor Chile, man. You heard about the earthquake, that's right? That's what I'm saying. He's, he's, yeah. that's going to be the big deal when he walks in. The one dude, like a skier, I think, from Chile. Dude. The one guy. Like the whole stadium is going to go crazy, I bet. It's unfortunate. Now that there's this big tsunami that's supposed to hit Hawaii as a result of this, I think they called off that, they, that warning. They did, did, did they? they? Okay, good. Good. They that, would, see, that would suck. That, I mean, that, that sets off all kinds of chain reactions. And <sighs> so they call sure, it hey, the they were warning us up here in Seattle that we might see some uh, after effects. Some high tide? Some unusually yeah. high tides, really? Yeah. Yeah. Faux uh-huh. reels. Wow, man! See, but imagine what if they had like a huge uh, earthquake, like in Fairbanks? Could that? Uh, I wonder if that could. I don't know where Probably. Fairbanks is, but I, I think it's on the coast of, uh, yeah, of Alaska. Certainly I, could. I, would, I would think that a tsunami generated there would get to you pretty quick. Probably. We're pretty far inland, though. I mean, Seattle is in the Puget Sound, which is, you know, a couple hundred miles inland, uh, even though it connects to the ocean. So, we're. We're we're pretty well blunted from anything big coming from the ocean, but you know it could mess up the sound at least. Hmm. So the year I was, uh, uh, well, I was still still a baby in Seattle. Um, Mount St. Helens erupted, and uh, my my mother tells these stories of, of it with you know, and they have pictures and crap, and she says it was just it was just ridiculous. You had yeah, it's, she said it was like snow. Yeah. And, oh yeah. 
and it's you know it's like but but ash and it got in everything and it was just horrible and they they say you know it's always a possibility it could happen again it could happen tomorrow it could happen next week it, you know who, who knows yeah just uh, like california falling in the ocean <laughs> yeah or hey. yellowstone park erupting into you know a massive super volcano that's yeah, yeah that's hey, yeah either way it all boils down to the plot of of a superman movie right it's true <laughs> sure 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 I'm just, I'm just gonna go with that and and yeah so there we go oh man okay so did either one of you see avatar yeah mm-hmm. of course 3d or 2d 3d oh yeah i, I saw it in 2d the, the 3d tickets were sold out and i didn't want to wait oh uh, okay and thoughts I liked it. I mean, I had kind of a bad experience because we were seen in the 3D theater, but we were way down in the front and off to the left-hand side. Oh, so we were not only craning our necks, but the 3D was kind of off. So anything that wasn't at kind of medium range was just a blur. So I haven't seen it non-blurry. I liked it okay. I think I probably liked it better the first time I saw it when it was called Dances of Wolves. But yeah! I, I, yeah. I mean, you know, or Pocahontas. It's not an original story, but I happen to like that story, so it worked out it's okay. Good, yeah. It's a good story, but you know, it should have been called Dances with Thunder Smurfs, and they should have just left it at that. Dances with okay. Thunder Smurfs. No, the visuals, I thought the visuals were wonderful. I, I thought the plot was somewhat old and used up, but you know, it was it was good to watch, and it wasn't disappointing in that I went expecting not to expect anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, what impressed I like me most was like when I was watching it, and you you realize I realized about halfway through, you're like, "Holy crap! Whoa, whoa, whoa! That's that's CGI." You, there was this point where they they had the suspension of disbelief, where the the real the real video merged with the CGI so seamlessly that I I, I literally stopped noticing that it was CGI. Yeah, me too. And mm. that's rare. So, yeah, bravo to Cameron for that. I'm sure it'll win twenty technical Oscars. Right. For so. so. I, I liked it. Yeah. Not bad. I'll probably get yeah. it on DVD. It, it wasn't a prequel. <laughs> Few things are. Oh. No. All right. Dinner. I think I can hear the siren song of dinner calling me. So Ooh, the siren I will be song of bidding dinner. you gentlemen adieu. And I can get hear the right. siren song of my wife calling me. So. Oh, boy. Wife aggro. Here thing. we go. All right. Well, gentlemen, <laughs> uh, I appreciate you coming on, guys. Yeah, it's been a blast. Definitely have to uh, do it again soon. Uh, what's the release date again for uh, Unknown? Uh, April. I can't remember what the exact date is. It's usually around the 17th-ish. Yeah. Are you guys having uh, guests on for episode 100? More than well, likely, that's... we will. More than likely. Uh, we haven't actually planned it out yet because it's still three weeks away. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me, in, keep me in mind. I can't guarantee anything. It might be uh, I might be out of town or something. But we uh, might do one know. of those uh, rolling things, you know, where you know uh, we'll bring you guys on two or three at a time. And because sure. I imagine it'll be a it'll probably be an extravaganza of a show. I sure. hope so. It will be. I I, I I wouldn't mind being here as, as if, if Sam's coming. I wouldn't mind getting to talk to Sam a little bit. That would be cool. Done. Done and done. Very cool. All right, dudes. You guys have a good night, and I will catch you on the flip side. All right, buddy. Thank you. Good night. Take care, Rod. All right. Bye. And I'll see you guys later as well. Good night, Gary. Yep. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for having me. You bet. See you later. Bye-bye. See? Look at that. (sighs) Ah.
always love having those guys on. I know, dude. Always love having those guys on. Yep. So, fantastic. Oh, feels good to do post show. <sighs> I know it's, it's kind fu- of a, it's kind of a fun deal because, well, just because I haven't gotten to do a post show in a month. This is true. I know, and uh, the Slurpee put me in a little bit of a better mood. I've just everything I've touched today has turned to stone. Aw, everything from my computer to. My daughter's soccer team played like they were stuck in freaking mud today, and they got their asses handed to them. And then the U.S. lost in overtime. Then, yeah. you know, just one thing after another after another. And, uh, you know, I lost some data on a memory card that had some camera that had some pictures on it that Ooh. I never lose pictures. I mean, I just never lose pictures. And then even a technical snafu again because of my piece of shit computer. You know, this is one yeah. of those things, but, um, huh. yeah, yeah, just one of those deals. But, you know, you move on. Yeah, it was a big Slurpee. My wife brought me a Slurpee. She knew, <laughs> she knew I was having a rotten weekend. See, that's, a, that's, a, that's how yeah. you know it's a good wife that loves you. She brings you a Slurpee when you're having a rotten weekend. Yeah, exactly. And I, I refereed like six games in a row yesterday, including my daughter's own game when the referees didn't show up. And that's a humongous no-no. But, yeah. I mean, there was nobody else to do it. So, yeah, um, So yeah, it happens. And I, I, um, I didn't, you know, it's so cold. And I didn't take sunscreen. And it was sunny. Not a cloud in the sky all day. And my face hurts. Because <laughs> I got myself sunburned. You look red. Dude. You, you look very red in the I, webcam. Man. My face hurts, dude. Oh, I'm going to go into work tomorrow, and they're going to be like, what the hell happened to you, man? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. And then I went, and then last night, all right, last night we had this poker party, all right? Tammy and Dan um, are, are big poker players. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we went over to their house. We Actually, we dropped Taylor off at their house, and then we went over to a guy named Adele, who, who we're all, you know, soccer friends with. And had this big poker party, like 20, 26, 28 people showed up for it and had this giant poker party. And, and I usually, at, at Adele's poker parties, Dan and I and Adele and another guy are always the final table. That's just, that, that's just given, right? Yeah. All right, so this little 15-year-old bitch shows up <laughs> and is playing hands that she has no business playing all right, she plays. She plays a hand that's four seven, not suited. Okay, four seven, not suited. I have pocket queens. Okay, flop comes up. I get my three queens. I'm like, all right, and then the rest are all low cards. And this is the hand I got knocked out with. They're all low cards, right? So six eight come up with the queen and something else that is inconsequential, and so I go all in. I know she doesn't have it. There's nothing possible on the board. And she 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 calls, and I'm like, okay, what the hell? You know, there's no way she's got two queens under there. She, she, she turns over 4-7, and I'm like, holy shit. She's going to draw an inside straight with a 5. Uh. River, a 5. Okay, this is after she drew two... A full house, 
a flush and so and a straight other times that I was in with fairly significant bets to beat me on the river. Oh yeah, two pairs with aces. Got rolled, man. I know. I got I got my ass killed by a 15-year-old who was playing shitty hands. Uh, but meanwhile, on the other side, Dan had the same thing happen to him. To where he got he got taken out. He had pocket queens got taken out by a girl who was who was holding two six, betting two six. Flop comes up six six four. And then queen ace. He had three queens. I'm sorry, queen. Oh, what was it? I don't remember. He had three queens. Was feeling really good about himself until the other deuce came up and she drew a full house and beat him. On the river. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was just one of those things, man. We got a guy in chat you need to kick right now. Why? Ice spamming. Oh, yeah. What a bitch. <laughs> yeah, it happens. It's too bad, really. It is. It's too bad. Almost as bad as, you know. Getting getting rolled in a good poker game. Yeah, but yeah. it happens. <laughs> poker noise. All right, dude. I got a pregnant wife calling me. Oh, you do? I thought she was napping. Well, yeah, but that doesn't last very on very long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all right. All right, dudes. Well, uh, gamer nation people, y'all have a really great day. Thank you, gamer nation. Sleep tight. Pleasant dreams. And don't let the bed bugs uh, swallow. <laughs>